0: Hello everyone, hello, hello, hello everyone,
1: so here's definitely my last religion episode for a while, and then I really need to breathe, this is so much that um, I'm bringing to you. I did this article last year, but I'm going to do it again. I'm going to give you more new insights. I love bringing the old so you can get new out of the old. Washingtonpost.com. This is why disabled people are so devastated by the Christian silence on health care. The church has offered mixed messages about the worth and person of those living with disabling diagnoses by Shannon Dingle, July 28, 2017. So parents of kids with disabilities in the church, what do you wish good church people knew? Pressing Yancey tweeted in April, when the responses to the hashtag disability in church was born. As the conversation evolved, people with disabilities chimed in, recentering the discussion on their own lived experiences. Many people noticed, retweeted, and shared how much they were moved by the contributions. I wasn't surprised that the conversation was driven by parents of children with disabilities, not people with disabilities themselves. I wasn't surprised that story after story revealed how little church leaders think about disability in their planning. I wasn't surprised to see the depths of pain displayed in lunch with 40 characters over and over again. As justice conversations are gaining steam, we talk a lot about race. Immigration is discussed often, too, especially the question of refugees. Religious liberty for Muslims comes up as no threats to freedom from one faith can affect all faiths. Misogyny is a topical attack when LGBTQ plus discrimination might be discussed. But disability? We don't usually consider that a justice issue. We either disabled or even marginalized by those who consider themselves champions for those on the margins. I live with physical disabilities as a result of childhood abuse and a chronic degenerative joint disease. I parent a son with autism, a daughter with ADHD and a daughter with cerebral palsy. I look for handicap accessibility as I walk with a limp and my child uses a motorized wheelchair for mobility. Our history of exclusion and erasure of people with disabilities in the church goes back to biblical times. In Old Testament law, priests with any disfigurement were forbidden from presenting offerings in the temple. In John chapter 9, we hear the disciples express the early church thinking that disability must be the result of personal or ancestral sin. On the other hand, Saint Thomas Aquinas' writings offer recommendations for the inclusion of people with intellectual disabilities in the church from baptism and communion to presence in general. However, U.S. churches haven't prioritized inclusion efforts until recently. Historically, U.S.-based Catholic and Protestant groups have built hospitals for those deemed crippled, but haven't made space for us in their places of worship. Martin Luther, who showed the for people with disabilities, once suggested that a specific child with significant disabilities be drowned because he wasn't fit to live. Luther's response was not an uncommon theological response during his day, according to Brett Webb. Mitchell's Unexpected Guest at God's Banquet. Similarly, the church has offered mixed messages about the worth and person of those living with disabled diagnosis. We have demonized the disabled by blaming them for their conditions, deified the disabled by treating life with suffering as akin to Christ's life, devalued our shared humanity in declaring the disabled to be in need of charity, but not community, and of dependence, but not dignity, and denied the disabled by refusing to provide access to religious life. Our family saw this play out in a small way on our last Sunday at a prominent Southern Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. We left a year ago. That night, the preschool class sang as part of the opening worship time. For my youngest child to participate with her classmates, my husband and a friend had to lift her in her wheelchair onto the worship stage because no ramp existed to allow entry otherwise. Why aren't ramps required there like they are in other public venues? because Christian schools and churches successfully fought to be excluded from the requirements of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was passed 27 years ago this week. History is why I wasn't surprised by the stories of hashtag disability church, why I wasn't surprised when then candidate Donald Trump's mocking of disabled reporters didn't end his campaign, why I haven't been surprised recently as legislative healthcare efforts move forward even as disabled people spoke of the detrimental effects on their lives. The advocacy organization, ADAPT, which fights for people who are disabled, led the charge toward passing the Disabilities Act position in opposition to the church in its stand for people with disabilities. So it doesn't surprise me that the church is largely silent against ADAPT, has been the most vocal opponent of the replacement and repeal of the Affordable Care Act. The Disabilities Act sets the stage for our exclusion for people with disabilities less likely to attend services, Bible studies, or other church activities. One third of those parents say they've left at least one church because their child wasn't welcome. According to a 2013 article by Elizabeth O. Hanlon in the Journal of Religion, Disability, and Health, the churches with the largest and best established inclusive ministries for children like McLean Bible Church in Virginia, the Stonebriar Community Church in Texas are led by pastors who have children or grandchildren with significant disabilities. They didn't know the need, they knew the person. They didn't care about special needs. They cared about a person with special needs. Many people with disabilities were begging fellow Americans to join with them in understanding and advocating for health care. I've been among those sharing my heart and my story, performing my pain in the hopes that I will finally be seen clearly enough for others to care about my well-being. But, but unless you love me or someone like me who lives with disability, then these stories will be only stories. Our justice was never meant to be an afterthought. In her book, Roadmap to Reconciliation, Brenda Salter McNeil writes, reconciliation is an ongoing spiritual process involving forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. Her context of writing was race, as it is often the case in our discussions about reconciliation in the church. As the mother of one Asian and three Black children, I'm thankful these conversations are taking place. But when it comes to this sort of reconciliation with people with disabilities, many Christians aren't ready to seek forgiveness, repentance, and justice. Most Christians I know are more knowledgeable about healthcare legislation's effects on middle-class families' premiums than on disabled people's ability to live at all. The impact of governmental actions on those with disabilities shouldn't be. Heard via stories online, but rather, stories shared as we pray and break bread together in community. Disability Church should be a commonplace reality, not a surprising hashtag. Shannon Dingle is a writer, speaker, advocate at shannondingle.com. She lives in Raleigh, North Carolina with her husband and her six children. So, these are other reasons why
0: I left the church, religion, and Christianity. Nursingcenter.com, disability in the church, how wide is your door?
1: Uh, Authors, Cunningham, Jill L., Mulvihill, Beverly A., Speck, Patricia M., article content. An estimated 10.2 million children, 13.9% ages 0 to 70 years in the United States, have one or more disabilities, a prevalence of 10% to 18.5% of all the children across America. This means that one in five households, 8.8 million families, have at least one child with a disability. Child and Adolescent Health Measurement Initiative, CAHMI 2007. Sadly, families of children with disabilities additionally experience an increase in the occurrence of secondary conditions, including medical, social, emotional, and community disparities, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS 2000. These conditions result in increased vulnerability and decreased overall health and well-being compared with the general population, Table 1. The quality of life experienced by these families often is adversely influenced due to lack of access to many community activities and services. HHS 2000. In fact, the National Organization of Disability Out 7 reports large differences in levels of participation in most basic life activities between people with and those without disabilities, Table 1, Secondary Conditions of disability. In response to these disparities, Goal 6 of Healthy People 2010 was developed to promote the health of people with disabilities, prevent secondary conditions, and eliminate disparities between people with and without disabilities in the US population, HSS 2000, page 63. This goal aims to improve the quality of life and the number of healthy years for people with disabilities and their families through their increased participation and inclusion in community activities and services. Six additional objectives contained in Healthy People 2010 goals relate specifically to children with disabilities and their families. To achieve these objectives, spiritual, physical, social, and emotional support must be provided for families that have children with disabilities. The opportunity to participate in regular social activities, such as attending church or community events and socializing with friends and families, need to improve functional status and well-being, HSS 2000. The faith community is one key for providing support and leadership to meet the needs of these families and to reduce their incidence of secondary conditions. Faith communities are increasingly welcomed as partners in public health and health promotion, institutes for public health and faith Collaborations, 2007. However, despite the potential of faith communities as health advocates, many families find places of worship to be inaccessible and unwelcoming to people with disabilities. Pawson and Turnbull, 2004, True Lawyer, 2002. In fact, most churches lack programs to reach disability community and congregations include few individuals with disabilities, table two. Table two, lack of faith inclusion programs and participation. This article aimed to demonstrate the importance of disability access and inclusion of people with disabilities as integral to the mission of faith communities, to explore the multiple barriers against inclusion of people with disabilities and faith communities, to provide practical examples and resources to help nurses and members of the faith community increase disability access and inclusion, and to emphasize the importance of including, of including this population as a national public health imperative. Disability inclusion in the church. Disabilities defined by Mullingville, Cotton, and Gaia, 2004, and the Maternal and Child Health Bureau's Division of Children with Special Health Care Needs, Nick Pearson, at, at As the risk for chronic physical developmental, emotional, or behavioral conditions experienced by children require health and related services beyond those required by children in general of the same age. As stated by Mo V. Hill et al. 2004, this definition consistently yields preference estimates of 15% to 20%. The inclusion is defined as participation by children with disabilities and activities designed for typically developing children without special needs. Mo V. Hill et al. 2004. The education system currently offers the best examples of inclusion. Within educational settings, children with disabilities typically attend the school and classroom they normally would attend if they have no disabilities. Children may spend all full inclusion or part, partial inclusion of their day in the regular classroom with their peers who have no disabilities. National Information Center for Children and Youth with Disabilities, NICHCY 995. Everyone benefits when all children are able to learn, worship, and play together. Center for Children with Special Needs, 2007. Inclusion offers the experience of an environment which the effects of segregation are limited and role models exist to foster the development of adaptive skills through imitation, Wallery and Wilbur's 1994. Children gain skills in social interactions, develop friendships with their peers that help them prepare to live more successful lives in the community. In addition, inclusion allows whole families the opportunity to develop meaningful relationships with others and with these feelings of isolation. Goral Nick, 2001, Thompson Talk 1993, Wallery and Wilbur's 1994. Inclusion reflects our larger community in which people with and without disabilities live, work, learn, and play together. Inclusion contributes to acceptance, improved socialization, understanding of individual differences. Center for Children Special Needs down 7 page 2. This offers the opportunity for typically developing children to gain a realistic understanding of disabilities, acquiring an appreciation for others different from themselves, learn altruistic behaviors such as kindness, patience, and respect, and build social skills, self-esteem, and principles of responsible for others. Stuyop, 1996, Thompson, Tall, 1993, Waller, and Wilberts, 1994. For the church, inclusion of children with disabilities offers an opportunity to minister to whole families who may have limited options for worship and expression of their spirituality with others. Welcoming children with disabilities benefits the children, their families, and the congregation. The opportunity to minister to special needs people is a blessing, not a burden. Special needs people are inherently blessed in very special ways by God. It is the unique privilege of those who get to know them at a deeper level to see God's grace manifested in them. Ministry to special needs people always results in extraordinary and in most cases, total life-changing blessing to those who minister the grace of God is never more real. Zacharias 2004, page 27. Spirituality, coping, and health. Families experiencing disability face a dynamic ongoing process of dealing with coping, adapting, adjusting, learning to live healthy lives within their communities, HHS 2000, coping with health-related issues incorporates many spiritual elements. Maltman, 1983, described health as a race of spirituality by stating, true health, true health is the strength to live, the strength to suffer, the strength to die. Health is not a condition of my body. It is the power of my soul to cope with the varying conditions of that body, page 142. Spirituality and religion play major roles in the lives of families of children with disabilities. Family involvement in religious practice helps to bring meaning and purpose as well as solace, strength, friendships, and emotional and practical support. Their strength and sense of well being gained through religious belief and practice enhance the ability of families to meet the challenges they face in other aspects of their everyday lives. Possum and Turnbull, 2004. Studies in various fields of health have shown that spiritual belief and practice contribute to resilience in people with illness or disability. Example, Canada 2001, views of illness and disability correlate with religious and spiritual beliefs. Families on their spiritual traditions to help them interpret disabilities, Zhang and Bennett 2001. Moreover, families who participate in religious activities tend to have better coping skills in dealing with the added stress of a family member with disabilities, Todd and Singer, 1991. Furthermore, the emotional support and relationships derived from a social support system such as a church family helps a person cope with stress provides a protective factor of various life situations. Not back in Gage, 1995. So you have uh, accommodating disability. Historically, disability has been viewed in terms of the medical model, which concentrates mainly on the impairments and not the, on the person, Bridger, 2000. This view emphasizes disability as intrinsic to the individual and inspires pity and fear. And more like a more contemporary view follows the social model, which suggests that disability is a social construct and that problems exist mainly within the environment rather than, rather than in the person. This view emphasizes dignity, independence, and choice by placing the person first. The social model focuses on the fact that in many cases society disables people. The way we organize our culture community can limit and restrict what some of its members can do. These barriers exist in the physical organization and personal aspects of our community in 2000. Two key pieces of legislation guarantee the civil and educational rights of people with disabilities. One of the Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA, and two the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, IDEA. I- I- Signed into law in 1990, the ADA is a conference of civil rights law protecting individuals with mental or physical disabilities from discrimination. United States House of Congress, 1991. IDEA ensures educational rights, giving the states the responsibility of providing a free, appropriate public education to all children, NICHCY 2006. The consistent concept embedded in these mandates is that individuals with disabilities must have the opportunity to participate equally in all community activities alongside their peers without disabilities. Children, churches, and places of worship are exempt from ADA IDEA, Printmore 2006 and get inside how or whether accommodations are made for members of visitors with disabilities. However, Jesus' words, love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew chapter 22 verse 39, NIV, New International Version, tells us that we should love and include everyone. Zacharias, White, 1004, an organization that helps churches minister to people with special needs, summarizes Christ's words. Jesus tells us that all the law can be crystallized down to simply loving God supremely and others as ourselves. Jesus said relationships with him and with people are what we as Christians are to be primarily concerned. Further, it should be noted that Jesus commands us to love all of our neighbors and everyone, not just people who look, talk, dress, and respond as we do. According to the word of God, an authentic body of believers will ultimately be concerned with filling this commandment as Jesus instructed and will be a church based on relationships pages. 20, page 29. As Christians live by Christ's teaching, they love, to accept, and recognize each person's unique gifts and abilities. All children should have access to full inclusion in religious education programs, regardless of their faith or their disability. Collins, Epstein, Rice, and Rice and Love, page 52. Zacharias of the Jesus spent the majority of his time on this earth ministering to the needs of the lame, blind, and infirm. Why should his church today be different? 2004 page 27 barriers to accommodation what are barriers that impede disability access and inclusion in faith communities churches commonly refer to tangible barriers such as architectural financial issues however more common barriers are those related to social constraints such as lack of awareness and knowledge limited attitudes and fears and discomfort and avoidance table three Barriers to inclusion. Many churches are simply unaware of how many families are affected by disability. For example, 65% of churches without a disability ministry have few of any persons with disabilities in their congregations. Zacharias was about before. Although some churches claim to have disability programs, activities are set up as exclusive programs and most of the congregation is unaware that the ministry exists. Some churches relegate people with disabilities to a separate class of building. They may be denied access to typical classes, worship, and fellowship times. Zacharias, way 2004. It is not uncommon for parents and church staff to place children with disabilities in a classroom that is not age-appropriate. When access to an age-appropriate classroom is possible, the actual support children with disabilities need typically is not available. Without the appropriate supports, parents are reluctant to attend service because they are concerned whether the needs of their child can be safely met. Cunningham, 2008. Church staff and volunteers can be reluctant to accept children with disabilities because they feel inadequately trained to provide care or have fears and misconceptions resulting from insufficient information and experience. Staff and volunteers typically have incorrect assumptions about the children with disabilities and the effect on the workload and child care setting. These fears and misconceptions also lead to a lack of staff and volunteers to provide additional assistance needed by children and youth with disabilities. Table three. Maryland Developmental Disabilities Council, MDDC 2004. Other barriers relate to medical behavioral issues of individuals with disabilities. Most staff volunteers are uncomfortable with children who have health issues or use medical equipment are not trained regarding disabilities or appropriate care. This lack of training ultimately results in in deficits and barriers for even basic care, such as toileting and feeding. Unusual behavioral patterns often in children with disabilities are a barrier as well, because most programs do not have support plans for dealing with challenging behaviors, MDDC 2004. As a result of complex medical behavior issues, concerns of liability increase. Many faith communities fear that developing a disability ministry will put them at increased risk of liability if something were to happen while a child is in their care. Child care providers incorrectly believe that they must have increased liability coverage if they care for a child with a disability. MDDC 2004, page 11. Making a difference. Despite barriers, some families turn to religious institutions to, for support, information, and development of their spirituality and faith. They need additional support for their child with disabilities to have the opportunity for social inclusion and worship. In turn, religious organizations need information, training, and support to overcome barriers and develop a comprehensive program that ministers to the needs of these children and their families. Possum Turnbull, 2004. In 2004, agencies in Alabama collaborated to conduct a forum style needs. Assessment of families with Children with Disabilities. Mole of the Hill in January 2004, the participants reported that churches in their communities often were unwilling to include their children and families. To increase awareness and provide support and training for the faith community, a funded project was implemented in the state of Alabama. The project titled Faith-Based and Inclusion for People with Disabilities was a collaborative effort supported by the Alabama Council for Developmental Disabilities, Alabama Governor's Office on Faith Based Initiatives, and the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Public Health. The objectives of the project were to improve awareness of the need for inclusion of children, youth, and adults with disabilities and their families in faith based programs, to increase the number of faith based programs with knowledge of best practice for inclusion of persons with disabilities, and to provide resources for collaboration and expertise for inclusion of persons with disabilities in faith based programs. Over the course of the project, several statewide workshops were conducted to provide information to church members and leaders, nurses, and families on the importance of including persons with disabilities not to implement ministry programs within their religious organizations. The programs are free of charge and open to all. Free on-site child care is available for children with and those without disabilities. Continuing education credits were offered to nurses. Each workshop included basic disability awareness training, developmentally appropriate care and practices, best practices for inclusion to the table four, identification and movement of barriers, affordable creative alternatives, and informational community and disability resources. Each training program featured experts in disability inclusion ministry who offered valuable examples, policies, and procedures of their programs, and specific questions regarding faith based inclusion of
0: persons with disabilities. So, here we go. Table four, best practice for inclusion, ministry in action. So
1: I see something clear: written program philosophy, written plan for inclusive programs, strong leadership, disability awareness, disability awareness for staff and children, training and supportive staff, sufficient staff like volunteers to meet the needs of all children in planned programs, communication, collaboration, adapted setting, activities and time, collaboration with families, evaluation, plan. Ministry in Action. Hearts in Hands an example of an ideal inclusive ministry whose coordinator participated in many of the project trainings described above. The program coordinator chose this name because we love with our hearts, we serve with our hands. The program's slogan is So That All May Worship in LD Fata Personal Communication, March 29, 2008. The mission of Hearts in Hands is to provide a means of inclusion and support for children with disabilities and their families and to share the love of Christ through service, encouragement, and support. The inclusion of persons with disabilities achieved by assigning a volunteer body to provide need assistance, needed assistance or child disabilities. This allows the child's parents and siblings to attend Sunday school and worship comfortably and confidently, knowing that their child is getting the extra assistance they may need. The program is staffed by lay volunteers not trained professionals. The ministry does not provide direct health care services, however. and unique plan is to respond to emergencies approved by each family. Any child may be served, whether a church member or not, and regardless of disability. Any child with a physical development impairment, short or long term, is eligible to participate at no cost to their families. Hearts and Hands, indeed, in an attempt to minimize various Hearts and Hands has developed written policies and procedures which are provided to volunteers and parents are participating in the program. These guidelines include orientation procedures, volunteer schedules and responsibilities, on care procedure for unexpected, for unexpected visitors. A child information form called "Getting to Know Me" behavioral support plans and a liability waiver form signed by parents or legal guardians of participating children. Hearts and Hands, indeed. Nursing implications: Christian nurses are uniquely empowered to serve the needs of families experiencing disability. According to Tree Lawyer, two thousand two, professions assist people affected by disability to achieve spiritual well-being, promote health that transcends physical, cognitive, and emotional limitations. Page one six zero one. Page 601. Christian nurses possess not only the knowledge to care for truth, disabilities, false, the love, compassion, understanding of Jesus to share with his families. assistant with their holistic caregiving nature, nurses seem to be mission-minded and enjoy the chance to provide a needed ministry right up in their own communities. Nurses can serve as men and missionaries to families experiencing disabilities. They can serve as a buddy volunteer to provide respond care their families, conduct workshops and training. Developing and coordinate disability ministries, facilitate a faith-based small group that promotes networking and families and resources encourage religious, religious institutions to address disability issues openly. In practice, nurses encourage communication regarding disability and spiritual needs and allow opportunities for sharing feelings and concerns. Nurses collaborate with spiritual leaders in their community to address spiritual issues the family may be experiencing with community's network of resources that demonstrate acceptance to support with disabilities. For these reasons, nurses may choose to be involved in programs or agencies that provide services, leadership, and expertise for the community with disabilities. In addition, nurses practicing family-centered care develop plans for the family rather than for the family. Furthermore, nurses in practice who are unaware of their own personal attitudes and understanding of disabilities are sure to demonstrate compassion rather than pity when working with families of children with disabilities, Tree Lawyer 2002. Conclusion. People with disabilities are essential to the wholeness of Christian community and ministry with them is an integral part of fulfilling the mission of the church. Everyone should have the opportunity to be full participants and contributors in the church community. Faith leaders open to the total community recognize that the failure to include persons with disabilities in the church evolves from social stigma, the lack of knowledge in and members and leaders of the church rather than in the, rather than in the person with a disability. In the current culture, human life is devalued and many people worship physical perfection. However, all humans are created in God's image. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and thus possess dignity, value, and purpose. Churches protect this vulnerable population and extend open arms of invitation and fellowship for all of God's people with programs that are inclusive for the persons with disabilities. Nurses play nurses can play a major role in providing inclusive religious opportunities for children and youth with disabilities, ensuring that the spiritual needs of entire families are met. In fact nurses are key contributors toward building faith communities in which all people experience health well-being and overall improvement in their quality of life at a glance as many as 18.5 percent of all children in the united states have disabilities along with myriad results secondary conditions the faith community is one key community need to meeting needs of these families however families with children with disabilities often are excluded barriers to inclusion include architectural financial issues lack of awareness and knowledge limited attitudes and fears, discomfort and avoidance. Nurses are uniquely qualified to lead disability inclusion ministry and help overcome the barriers. These are all the other reasons why I left the church religion and Christianity.
0: Um so there's more that I want to say. Real quick,
1: so I won't repeat this again, I've always wanted to be a model, I've always wanted to be a supermodel,
0: because I'm a pretty person, I love to be fit, I love
1: to be healthy, more importantly, I love to be whole, and plus I've always been a body positivity person and i want people to not be ashamed of their natural looks i don't want people to be ashamed of how they were made so i want to promote healthy body image and i feel like
0: my being a model and a supermodel would definitely um Be what is needed amongst
1: people like me who've been labeled with autism, people like me who are Black in this world, people like me who are, who, who are, who, who is a severe child abuse victim, right? I want to, I've always feel like my being a fashion model is one of the ways that I can help people to appreciate their looks and the looks of others.
0: And to be honest, I see myself as
1: a positive sex symbol, meaning I'm a decent human being who is widely considered sexually attracted to the countless many others. And more importantly, I am considered sexually attractive to myself. Healthy self-esteem is one of my strengths. And the reason why I wanna be a sex symbol because I want people to know that it's okay to find decent people appealing. And it's okay to be in a, a decent person because that's what already makes you appealing. So, yes, I am proud of being a sex I take I wear that as a badge of honor. Okay. I will say this for the very last time I decided to do erotic thrillers. I want to be depicted in erotic photography. I want to be featured in erotic art. I want to be featured in erotic paintings. I want to be featured in erotic sculptures. I want to be featured in erotic dramas. I want to be featured in erotic films. I want to be featured in erotic music. I want to be featured in erotic literature. Right? Meaning, I want to produce and star in
0: erotic films and erotic photography. I want to Produce and star
1: in erotic literature. Erotic dramas, erotic sculptures,
0: erotic paintings, erotic
1: art. Because I want to produce and feature erotica. Um,
0: I want to produce and be featured in erotic content. Um,
1: I want to be... Produce and make erotica in all its forms. You know. I want to be featuring at Curiosity. I want to produce and make Karyasa, which is it's erotica in pornography as discrete collectible items, usually in published or printed form in the antiquarian book trade. Pornographic works
0: are often listed under Karyasa, erotica or face tag. That would be me. I want to produce and be featured in erotic depictions. Erotic, depic- erotic depictions. So that's who I am. I will never have to repeat that again in, in this podcast by myself. But I do this with a guest. Cool. So I want to be featured in TVY, TVY7, TVG, TVPG, TV14,
1: and TVMA movies. I, mo- I My favorite to be featured in is TVMA
0: because I'm a TVMA type of person. Okay, I want to be featured the most in TVMA. That's because it's my favorite.
1: Okay, that was the TV parental guidelines in America. Okay. And the outside of America, you know, all the types of ratings apply. I want it to be featured in G, PG, PG-13, R, and NC-17 movies. In all honesty, my favorite will be NC-17 movies. I want to be featured the most in nc seventeen movies as a result.
0: Okay. I'm done with that. I want to be a part of public nudity
1: within law and reason. What does that mean? So I will never repeat this again. I want to do nude photo shoots. I want to do nude celebrity media in the form of paparazzi photographs because I give the paparazzi
0: permission to photograph me nude, fully nude, actually. want to be featured
1: in nude celebrity media in the form of film screenshots.
0: I want to do fully nude scenes in non-pornographic mainstream films.
1: There won't be any stolen private materials because because I'll constantly be giving my permission to film naked with uh, entities that I know for certain will treat me right. There's nothing to steal because it's because I constantly allow it to happen to me in terms of me being being photographed fully nude. It's like, yeah, what is there to steal if I say, hey, look at me. You can't steal something because my permission has already been granted. So if you see me nude, it's automatically understood. Antonio said yes. So Exactly. So
0: celebrity sex tapes. Could I make one? Well I could. I'm all for it. You know it's all ethical so
1: why not show ethical eroticism between adults who have compassionate unconditional sacrificial love for one another. (laughs) That is Definitely, um, my mentality. This one's called Snowy Nights. This
0: is nice.
1: Hello, everyone. So, there will be no fake or doctor photos of me. At least, I don't think so, because the photography that you'll be getting about me would be so real that you won't be attracted to the doctor photo so i can't say that i want to do all types of nude celebrity media i want to do all types of fully nude celebrity media i want to do all types of partially nude celebrity media there i said it i want to be a part of the energy of nude celebrities i just feel room really tagged as routines i want to be a Part of the imagery of new celebrities culture, yes. Now. I must say that I want to, I want my full and I want my full nudity
0: Uh, Featured in nude calendars. Softcore pornography. Hardcore pornography.
1: Again, erotic photography. uh, Nude photography. Fine art nude
0: photography. Glamour photography. and Naturist magazines. I also want my full nudity featured in body paintings, the nudes, nude art, if you will, Nude beaches, nude weddings, naked yogas, nude swimming, skinny dipping, if you will,
1: naturist resorts, nudist resorts
0: naturist camps, clothing optional events, saunas, massages, and exhibitionism. Yes, I'm an exhibitionist.
1: I'm also a voyeurist, um, because I engage in voyeurism. I also want to be featured in nudity in American television. I want to be featured in nudity in music videos. I want to be featured in nudity in advertising,
0: also known as sex in advertising. Absolutely. I want to be featured in naked news. I want to be an art model. I want to be featured in nude modeling art. Yes. I wouldn't mind streaking, but at all
1: my nudity would be within law and reason, okay? Law abiding and reason abiding, okay? I want to be featured in naked news. I want to feature in naked parties. Nice. Nude parties. I want in on this. Um, yeah. Yes. This is definitely me. I want to be featured in nude portraits. I want to be featured in nudes.
0: I do. Yes, I want to be a nude model. I want to be featured in all erotic depictions. <laughs> I want to be featured in nude magazine covers. Definitely me. I want to pose nude for magazine covers. Again, I want to be, I want to. Post nude for music
1: album covers. I want to be featured nude and
0: in informational, educational, as long as age appropriate and within law and reason. Um yeah. Nude photography, yes, yes,
1: nudity and art, I want in on that, I want to do that. Studies of the human body, as long as I get to be naked, absolutely. Yes, this is me. Yes, I want to be in all of the lawful and reasonable depictions of full nudity, pertaining all to
0: me. And I would love to do strip teases and be a stripper.
1: I'm having fun, having so much fun. Okay, I just wanted to get that out of my system so everybody will understand that I'm about being unconventional in terms of doing the right things. I want to promote healthy body image, uh, healthy nudity, healthy, sex, healthy sexuality, uh, healthy intimacy, um, healthy interpersonal uh, relationships. Um, healthy uh, self worth, you know, that's like repeating myself to have, have self esteem, uh, healthy regard, healthy mutual regard, um, healthy eroticism, healthy sensuality, um, healthy kinky, healthy shape shifting, uh, being healthily energetic, um. Treating self and others as royalty. That's why I want to do all things needed to full
0: within law and within reason. Okay. Now let me get back to. Uh, The Eight Stages of Leaving
1: Organized Religion by Nanis Ellis, contributing writer for Wake Up World. And before I, I begin, I'm going to say this for the very last time. If I ever repeat myself, it's with a guess. Because if I don't repeat myself, that means I'm doing an episode by myself. I don't want to bore you. So before I begin, I'll I restate everything
0: again. I just remembered this.
1: I want to be in mainstream porn that specializes in
0: ethical porn and feminist porn. I'll be a mainstream uh, porn star in that way. And that will be it. Okay. Um, I don't mind being a pornographer director, etc. in that world. I don't mind being
1: a performer in that world. As long as it's they have ethical practices that honor everybody, not just men, I'm all for it. I want it. And as long as they try to be respectful in the descriptions, the tags, it's all good with me. Okay, let me get focused now. I'm glad I don't have to repeat myself ever again because certain things I've said already. Great, The Eight Stages of Believing Organized Religion by Nannis Ellis, contributing writer for Wake Up World. Many of us were indoctrinated into organized religion before we were old enough to make our own choices or choose our own beliefs. And consequently, by accepting what our parents, teachers, and peers preach, their religious beliefs became ours. Moreover, as a result of following religious doctrine, our sense of worth and identity and purpose all became deeply entangled in religious roots, with our closest friends and family forming our spiritual community, these roots form the foundation of our lives. However, despite years of dedication, once we begin to wake up and question this foundation, the journey out of religion begins. Although the path is unique for each individual, leaving organized religion is often a complex process that unfolds in eight stages. Understanding the dynamics and nuances of each stage can smooth out many transitional bumps on the road to freedom. And by providing valuable insight, turn confusion into clarity. Because organized religion imprisons us from the inside out, there's no foreseeable escape until we free ourselves from within. Stage one, the the stage of noticing contradictions. Religious followers are often taught not to question religious rules or beliefs. And as a result, most of us learn to ignore contradictions and discrepancies within our religious institutions. However, regardless of past blindsidedness, stage one begins the moment we start paying attention to institutional behaviors that conflict with religious teachings. For instance, although our religion may preach unconditional love and inclusivity, our religious community is biased and judgmental and more like an exclusive club. Our religious leaders may fail to practice what they preach and may even be exposed for abusing their power. We might also experience inequality where women are considered spiritually inferior or men and women are condemned for their sexual orientation or other non-conformist tendencies. Despite the fact that these blatant issues and others are justified, downplayed, or intentionally concealed in order to protect the image of the organization, we can no longer turn a blind eye. As the next step on the path to exiting religion in the beginning of the end, we start to question the integrity of our religion. By embarking on a quest for truth, the journey to freedom is accelerated into stage two. Stage two, the stage of questioning. As we dive deep, the religious rabbit hole in quotations, we silently question the rules and reasons for all the bylaws and beliefs that govern our religion. We might even reexamine the religious history we were taught. Everything we once blindly accepted as truth is now subject to scrutiny. And when facts, details, and common sense don't add up, we grow increasingly suspicious. Regardless of details, the process of questioning often reveals shocking information. For instance, if our religion operates as a profitable business, we may discover that leaders and followers alike unknowingly pray to a monetary god. We might also discover that our religious organization is built on a hierarchy of power where religious leaders have all the power providing blessings, prayer, healing, salvation, etc., and followers have none. Hence, when a religious organization is built on disempowerment, rules and bylaws perpetuate dependency while independent thinking is discouraged, blind obedience is rewarded. Once the blatant truth becomes obvious, it's common to experience some degree of anger and betrayal, especially if we feel deceived by those most entrusted. We might wonder how we did not see it all before. No doubt, distracted by religious fairy tales and their misleading meanings we only saw what we were told to see we only believe what we were taught to believe just like everyone else we followed quietly along like sheep never asking why as the truth is revealed during stage two it's common to either pull away and silently label or begin an outward investigation confronting religious leaders and slash your fellow followers unfortunately most religious institutions are too fragile to undergo an honest examination and because exposure can result in collapse most religious leaders avoid any type of inquisition like the plague. Avoidance tactics include misdirecting questions, spewing cognitive answers, I add word salad, or reciting religious doctrine. To further discourage questioning, Followers are often quote unquote trained to keep each other in line. And this means that potential disbelievers are quickly shut down by judgment and ridicule. And any sign of disbelief is automatically undermined by scripted answers. And I say that a lot of these religious institutions are all about acting and role-playing, faking and fronting. Even if these tactics unnerve our line of questioning and we decide to keep our opinions to ourselves, our suspicions only increase and growing more and more disheartened, faith diminishes accordingly. After being entranced by dogma and doctrine for countless years, the stage of questioning can be quite sobering. However, although verifiable knowledge easily shatters illusion, fear, and confusion, often lead to denial. Stage three. This stage of denial. As stage three begins, the facts are indisputable, and the hardest part has only just begun. On the fence between religious bondage and the acceleration of freedom, we dream of life beyond religion, and yet at the same time, we ponder all the problems we must face in order to become free. No doubt, by leaving organized religion our entire lives might be tossed upside down. If our family and friends make up our religious community, leaving organized religion can result in judgment and rejection from the people we most endear, including parents, children, spouses, et cetera, and along with lifelong friends, we might also experience a loss of community support. Plus, if we participate in organizational roles, leaving organized religion can result in the loss of identity if our leisure life is intertwined within the religious community, we might also lose the activities we enjoy most. Last but not least, if we happen to work with fellow followers or leaders, we could be subjected to continuous scrutiny or even lose our livelihood. Due to potential consequences, it's just too scary to verbalize a decision or confess one's truth and seeing no easy choice it's common to go on pretending like nothing's changed. However, to remain in our religious organization we must justify complacency and rationalize religious practices we no longer condone. Although this may seem inconsequential at the time, there's an unavoidable cause for hiding in the quote-unquote religious closet. By denying our truth and betraying our true selves, we are forced to live inauthentic lives. And the longer we pretend to be someone we're not, the more pain and suffering we experience. Whether months, years, or decades of feeling of expression and stifled, growth and well-being is equally stunning. And over time, the practice of self-suppression is a formula for chronic depression. Although the choice to leave religion may be clear, it's also incomprehensible. We must either betray those we love or continue to betray ourselves. Clearly to make such an important important decision, we must be able to trust ourselves. Unfortunately, if we depended on religious leaders for guidance and religious doctrine for standards of behavior, self-trust is likely a foreign concept. Moreover, if we cannot confidentially trust ourselves, how can we be responsible for our own lives? With our hearts trapped in turmoil and our heads buried in the sand, the choice to leave religion often invokes an eternal battle when we're torn in two. As denial and doubt pair up against truth and self-trust, we're only fighting ourselves. However, even when doubt and denial have the upper hand, we cannot escape the fact that we are suffocating And deep inside we know that we are only prolonging the inevitable. Although the idea of taking action is overwhelming, we cannot move forward on the path to freedom until we accept our truth and trust ourselves to make the right choice. The next stage is letting go. Stage four, the stage of letting go. As we move out of denial into stage four, we begin to unravel our religious roots. Even though we might be ready to embrace a whole new paradigm, separating our lives from religion is a complex process that entails an in-depth evaluation of identity, roles, beliefs, and everything we once considered fact. After a thorough self-evaluation, the next step is disentangling from the past. As you go through the process of letting go, you may discover deeper levels within yourself, and the deeper you go, the more burry, quote-unquote, stuff you uncover, and consequently, the, the more there is to let go. Oftentimes, old beliefs are the hardest things to release, even when you know they are untrue. It can be painful to permanently abdicate beliefs that have formed your entire life. And in fact, when core beliefs are discarded, the foundation of life disintegrates accordingly. If this is the only foundation you've ever known, you may feel empty, lost, and not knowing what to believe, And oftentimes, intense emotional turmoil can turn into an identity crisis. However, by the end of stage four, once you finally accept your own truth, it's no longer possible to live under the pretence of religion. As if awakened from a deep spell, you're no longer hypnotized by promises and fears, and maybe for the first time, you have the ability to think for yourself. However, to claim victory over doubt and denial, you must voice your choice through an official resignation. Now entering stage five, it's time to come out of the religious closet. Stage five, the coming out stage, coming out of the religious closet can be one of the toughest things to do, especially when your entire life has evolved around religion and the lives of family and friends still do. Even if you plan and practice what you're going to say when religion rules your family, the moment of disclosure likely comes with anxiety and dread. However, if your family assumes you're going through a temporary fad, FAD, they might not take you seriously at first, but once you make your choice perfectly clear, you can expect reactions to run rampant. In fact, if your family believes that religious doctrine supersedes your personal boundaries, they'll likely give themselves permission to judge or even resort to coercive strategies. For instance, to get you to change your mind, your family might try to manipulate you through guilt and shame, accuse you of being selfish, or overemphasize various scare tactics such as the threat of eternal damnation or permanent separation from your family in the afterlife. Although they might sound irrational if your family believes they're threats, and you want to believe too, be warned, scare tactics could invoke serious doubts in you. With utmost certainty, to successfully come out of the religious closet, you must choose yourself over and above all else. And if you've never done this before, it can feel selfish and wrong. Moreover, if your new behavior contradicts old beliefs, and these are all, and these are the same beliefs your family and friends still hold dear, you might be shaky in your choice and easy to re enroll or manipulate. Therefore, to deter the effects of judgment, avoid manipulation and ignore scare tactics. It's important to process confusing emotions. It's important to process confusing emotions, smooth out split energy, and be grounded in your choice before coming out of the closet. However, don't confuse being grounded in your choice with trying to convince anyone of your new beliefs. The latter is a formula for disaster. Relationship risks. Through sharing the same set of beliefs, most religious interconnect follows into a tight-knit community. So when we no longer agree on the same beliefs and we're no longer willing to pretend, lose the one thing we had in common. Because the loss of commonality creates disconnection we may become, at least temporarily, exchange, estra- estranged from the people we love most. Since it's quite common to experience relationship rifts, if you haven't yet developed meaningful relationships outside of your religious community, stage five can be marked by loneliness, but remember, it's just a stage. No matter the initial reaction, your family and friends will likely go through their own period of denial. And therefore, during this stage, it's important to be patient. After all, you've had time to process your decision. It's only fair that your family and friends have time to catch up, but this doesn't mean that you should accept their judgment or coercion. Rather than defending yourself or trying to convince anyone of anything, it's best to set and enforce boundaries that stop unwanted opinions. For instance, you might, you might say something like, I'm sorry that my decision is causing me pain and that's not my intention. However, I spent a great deal of time and energy making my choice and I know what's right for me. You don't have to approve or accept my beliefs and you certainly don't need to agree, but I'm 100% clear and committed and there's nothing you can say to change my mind. While enforcing new boundaries, it's important to be diligent and consistent. With, while enforcing new boundaries, it's important to be diligent and consistent without being defensive. So rather than arguing with others, it's usually best to temporarily separate or disengage from a state of love. Stage six, the stage of self-discovery and exploration. Rather than, being, rather than being the end of an arduous journey, leaving organized religion is the beginning of a new adventure. Although there is life after religion, it also depends on what you do and why you do. Whether you you carbonate into stagnation or awaken as your true self is completely up to you. As you free yourself from religious constraints, it's time to embark on a journey of inner discovery and outer exploration. Although some people embrace this opportunity by taking a walk on the wild side and exploring uncharted waters, it's more the exception than the rule. Even after you officially leave religion, deeply ingrained beliefs can create a gap between the desire for new experiences and the courage to take action. And consequently, religious roots can continue to inhibit exploration, thereby affecting the quality of your new life. So even though you formally said goodbye to organized religion, you're not really free until you identify and release any remaining beliefs that no longer serve. In fact, in order to escape energetic bondage, you must specifically disentangle your worth from religion. Until we consciously disentangle our words from religion, we unconsciously suppress expression. Once untied from religious constraints, you are free to explore unlimited choices. Because you're trying to figure out how to live your life, the spirit of exploration can entail trying on different perspectives, embracing new attitudes, testing familiar values, even adopting a whole new personality. As well, the process of self-discovery comes as a series of one-time experiences or an intensive exploration, it becomes a new way of life. And later, authentic self-expression becomes second nature, and life begins to flow. Although it might take time and intention, by the end of stage six, we will be living on our own terms. Stage seven, the stage of forgiveness and reconciliation, says we cannot fully embrace our new lives while holding. Well, since we cannot fully embrace our new lives while holding on to the past, forgiveness is key. I would say for I will I say forgiveness is an option. I don't like to force on anybody. Your whole, if you choose to forgive or not, your whole is not depicted upon uh forgiveness. I always love to uh state that to people because I really love people.
0: Um this is what I will say.
1: Um, to forgive others, we must process feelings of betrayal and at least blame to forgive ourselves. We must process feelings of guilt, regret, shame, and powerlessness. These are all optional, nothing for us. Do what's right a few times of your healing process, because nobody can dictate your healing process for you. As you make peace with the past, the reconcile call of lost time. Remember that no one can see the forest through the trees until they're out of the woods. So rather focusing on anything lost, you might want to celebrate everything gained. I'm not saying downplay anything lost we're just saying focus more on what you've gained and less on what you feel like you lost or made to feel like you lost the journey of self-discovery eventually become grounded in our chosen lives even though we have developed new relationships we might still yearn to reckon to reconnect with family or friends however despite the fact that we have forgiven the judgment and rejection if you choose to you don't have to they might still need time to accept our lifestyle choices this could result in an extended separation period. Um, sometimes that's not the case as long as you accept your right life choice. That's all that matters. And it may result in a permanent separation period. Since peaceful reconciliation unfolds through love and compassion, it's only possible to rebuild relationships with people who are open and willing. Therefore, instead of forcing communication, we must wait until our family and friends go out of their heads and into their hearts. However, when this finally happens, you must build a new foundation for each old relationship. This often means cultivating non-religion-based commonalities, developing deeper communication, agreeing on boundaries that support the relationship. For example, avoiding controversial topics such as spirituality and religion. In some cases, your family and friends may never get out of their heads and into their hearts. So you may not ever get to talk to them. As long as you have healthy communication with yourself and the people are supportive of your non-religious life, that's truly all that is important. Also, if a family member or friend begins their journey out of religion, you'll probably be the first to know. By holding a safe space for exploration and supporting their transition, you could be their lifeline to freedom. However, be careful, quote-unquote, not to push and don't be the first to bring it up. Uh, Stage eight, the stage of integration. Leaving organized religion is always life-changing while learning to live without familiar constraints. Freedom can feel overwhelming at first. No doubt spiritual sovereignty requires a major shift in consciousness, and oftentimes integration comes in waves. To ease the transition period, it's important to give your new lifetime and space to unfold, and along with these two essential gifts, it's equally important to practice self-love and become your own best friend. Re-embracing spirituality is a byproduct of leaving organized religion, it's not to be suspicious of spirituality, even reject it entirely. However, just because religion let you down doesn't mean that spirituality is equally deceptive. For many people, the loss organized religion leaves an empty space along with the desire to fill it. Since how you fill that emptiness can make all the difference in the world, it's important to consciously fill this space with your own thoughts, beliefs, and intentions. By mindfully cultivating a spiritual practice that supports you, there are no cognitive standards to meet or unreasonable conditions to satisfy, and no matter what you do or don't do, you can't get it wrong. When it comes to spirituality, you are unconditionally worthy right from the start and with nothing to prove nor perform. There are no hoops to jump through or people to please, and this means that there's never a reason to give your power away. So rather than throwing out spirituality with religion, you have the power to create a direct connection to source on your own terms. Um, Finally, although you might experience a period of time without the support of a loving community, be careful not to judge changing circumstances prematurely. As a massive awakening unfolds, people all over the world are leaving various situations and organizations that no longer fit, and just like you, looking for the place they belong. As a result, like-minded people are forming new paradigms of communities where everyone thrives. So after you say farewell to organized religion and discover who you really are, don't be surprised to find an ideal community waiting just for you. In love, grace, and attitude. Nanise, so here, so here's the truth. That's practice secular spirituality. Secular spirituality means you focus on positive character traits, love, joy, peace, kindness, those kind of things. You focus on living a holistic life, being a complete, mature person. Uh, you focus on nature and the beauty of it. So. That's what secular spirituality is all about. It's seeing. It focused on common ground instead of focusing on partisan anything and everything. Okay, so you can be spiritual and secular at the same time. Spiritual secular spirituality. There's no religion to it at all. So that's what I wanted to uh, say. And I, I, I've experienced all the eight stage of Leave Organized Religion. I've, I did the stage of noticing contradictions. I did the stage of questioning. I did the stage of denial. I did the stage of letting go. I did the coming out stage. I did the stage of self and exploration. I did the stage of forgiveness and reconciliation. I did the stage... Of integration. So, yes, all these stages, I experience them all every day. Because the more I evolve, the more I hold on to some things and new things, and the more I let go and release the old things and things I don't need. So, yes, they, these are all the stages I experience daily of leaving organized religion.
0: Okay, so
1: Waking Up from Religion by Nanise Ellis, contributing writer for Wake Up World. I found God once I lost my religion. That's my reality. Often our religious beliefs are handed down to us by family and culture. And by the time we are old enough to consciously choose, it's too late because we're already brainwashed with preordained beliefs that seem to be set in stone. Ideally, the true purpose of any religion should be to facilitate a direct connection with the divine and to support spiritual awakening. Unfortunately, few, if any, religions fulfill this purpose. If they did, many more of us would be awake by now or at least intimately connected to the source of who we really are. Even with the prevalence of new age spiritual practices today, few of us have attained full spiritual awakening and direct divine connection. What's wrong with this picture? Maybe that that answer lies in the reasons why humanity seeks out religion or structured spirituality in the first place. Seeking the answers to the unknown can be a scary business. Where do we come from? Why are we here? And especially, where do we go after departing? The further we travel down the rabbit hole in our quest for spiritual truth, the more lonely, confusing, and frightening it can become. Religion preys on this fear and confusion by providing pre-made answers designed to give us a false sense of security. It offers a reprieve from that inner quest, but in exchange for that spiritual crutch, we must give up spiritual sovereignty and the freedom to choose our own beliefs. We must give up the very thing that saves us from finding our true selves. And many, and this is the writer speaking about the about uh, speaking about uh, Nanice's childhood. In many ways, my spiritually convoluted childhood was a gift in disguise. Although my mother was very strict Roman Catholic and my father was very strictly Jewish, I was baptized Christian and when it was time to send me to school, I was sent to a very Catholic school run by tyrant nuns. Neither my mom nor my dad considered that they were sending me to a Catholic school where I would stand out like a sore thumb with a very Jewish last name and my nose to match. I was treated differently by the nuns than the other kids, but I was too young to understand why. And by the end of first grade, even the other kids formed an alliance against me. This overt judgment from nuns and peers went on for years, and as a result, I did poorly in school. I had no friends, and I believe, there, I believe that there was something very wrong with me. In fifth grade, the ongoing emotional stress caused me to have a nervous breakdown, and as a result, my parents enrolled me in public school and also followed me to figure out this quote unquote religion thing on my own. By the time I was twelve, my my immense search for truth was underway. Up until that time, I had been taught that God was to be feared, and if you sin or break any commandments, you would be punished, maybe even sent to a fiery hell to repent eternally. It was quite convincing, but something inside me said it just wasn't true. My long and relentless search for spiritual truth delivered me to a sacred space that was not surprisingly, void of all religion and the imprisoning dogma that keeps one from discovering the truth for oneself. Why is it that religion religions often keep us from the very thing they should be doing? Instead of empowering us to a full connection with the divine and supporting us to wake up remember who we really are, they keep us asleep, buried under piles of disempowering beliefs that they program into our vulnerable minds. If we are fighting to prove that we're worthy of God's love, we must depend on a go-between Priest, rabbi, guru, etc., et in order to communicate with God, how can we ever attain a deep spiritual connection with the divine? Programming programming religion. Most religions operate through mechanisms of control, but often the dynamic of control is so co- covert that you cannot recognize it. And if you cannot recognize it, you might easily fall for the religion's sales pitch. Or if you are a longtime follower, leaving the religion can be like extracting yourself from emotional quicksand. Most religions, and even some spiritual practices keep people asleep through a program of shame and secrecy. The program includes an ingenuous control formula based on disempowering beliefs such as unworthiness, powerlessness, judgment, and exclusion, all resulting in painful and debilitating emotions that can last a lifetime. Installing beliefs. Most religions install beliefs about quote-unquote right and wrong, good and bad, and sinful and saintly, causing fathers to believe their well-being or salvation is dependent on their behavior, and if they disobey, they are judged and punished with the equivalent of karma or an eternal afterlife of unwarranted proportions. But that is not even the worst part. The defiance of your religious beliefs automatically invokes feelings of shame, guilt, obligation, or regret. These feelings, or the fear of these feelings, can be a more powerful deterrent than even the threat of physical torture. The deepest part of the control mechanism is through manipulating emotions so that, you can, so that you actually punish yourself. For example, if your religion says that it is wrong to have sex outside of marriage and premarital sex, you will automatically punish yourself through feelings of deep shame, guilt, regret, and unworthiness. In fact, if you, ev- if you even think about going against the religious doctrine, these powerful emotions will induce feelings of impending regret and make you think twice. The same goes for things like regular attendance, tithing, slash donations, and other conditions or requirements of your religion. Your fear of feeling guilt or regret controls your behavior and makes you do things that maybe aren't right for you, or maybe keeps you from expressing your real self. The thing is, if you are emotionally manipulated, how can you even know what is best for you? Only through free will can you ever be inspired by your own inner being. Because the control is coming from inside you in the form of your own beliefs and emotions, you probably don't even realize that you are being controlled, which is what makes this type of control even more diabolical than if someone threatened you with a knife. When you can identify an external control source, it is clear that you're being controlled. And When you have been willingly programmed with beliefs and these beliefs are causing painful emotions, it's almost impossible to discern that an external force is a control of your life. Taking advantage of the young and vulnerable. Most people are programmed with religious beliefs even when they are too young to question those beliefs or at a very vulnerable time in their lives. For example, people seek spiritual answers when they're experiencing emotional pain or confusion. Religions feed off this and even take advantage of this vulnerability. seducing seekers with the promise of security and comfort for this life and maybe even the afterlife. Sacrificing power in exchange for salvation. Most religions ask that you give away your power and that you trust the religion and its leaders more than you trust yourself. You are taught in order to connect with the divine, you must depend on non-physical deities or religious leaders. If you want to pray or answer or you seek forgiveness, you must use a go-between because you're not worthy or pure enough for a direct communion with the divine. First of all, the message is don't trust yourself. And as long as you don't trust yourself, you remain powerless to external authority ruled by conditional worth. Earlier I read to you, Sacrifice and power exchange for salvation. Okay. Ruled by conditional worth. In most religions, there is an unspoken decree of unworthiness. In most religions, there is an unspoken decree of worthiness that that all practitioners agree to. Your worth is dependent on how well you follow the rules of your religion. If you do as you are told, according to your religion, or your religious leader, you are deemed worthy. And if you go against or question the rules or beliefs, you are deemed unworthy. Unworthiness induces deep feelings of shame, which leads to secrecy. Use of judgment, the fear of being judged, shame, or the subject of gossip is commonly used to keep followers in line, creating secrets and keeping followers from sharing their indiscretions with each other. Because judgment feels like death to the ego, you will do almost anything in order to avoid being judged. As a result, everyone pretends to be a good follower while secretly hiding any bad behavior because no one is sharing openly. It appears that everyone else is saintly, making it impossible for you to speak your truth. No room for doubt or questions that you that if you believe that your fellow practitioners will ostracize you or report you to religious leaders you will not likely share any feelings of doubt about the religion or its leaders you will silently keep your questions or uncertainty to yourself never knowing that your friend neighbors or family members feels the same way judgment and fear of being judged supports division as the saying goes dividing and conquer and at all costs keep those already conquered from coming together in rebellion silence and separation allows religious agendas to operate unnoticed Exclude non-believers. What about the threat of non-believers that are not a part of the religion? Often fathers are well-trained in converting non-believers with programmed answers for any and all objections that might come from the one they are trying to convert. Fathers are often taught how to prey upon vulnerabilities with promises of salvation, but if that doesn't work, the non-believer is viewed negatively cast aside as ignorant and excluded. This type of righteousness where the believer is right that the non-believer is wrong, which is another form of judgment and exclusion in the name of God. The model often is either believe and join us, or be excluded and judged as sinner. I'm not saying that you should leave your religion or even think about it. That is not the point. The point is, if you want to awaken to the truth of who you really are, you must free yourself from disempowerment. This means taking back your power from everyone and everything, including religion. It might seem easy to blame religion for keeping you powerless, asleep, or disconnected, but religion only not exist. Because we seek answers outside of ourselves. From the deepest perspective, religions are set up to fail you, but eventually you will look in the only place where you can ever find the answers you seek deep inside. Religion says you are unworthy unless you meet certain conditions. Awakening reveals you are unconditionally worthy. Religion says you are powerless to external sources. Awakening reveals your power is access as you take responsibility for your life. Religion separates, judges, and excludes. Awakening and oneness are synonymous. In awakening, you remember that who you really are is a divine. If you judge yourself or others, you are really judging God. God has no religion, the words of Mahatma Gandhi, and Gandhi's right. How do you know if your religion or spiritual practice supports spiritual empowerment, divine connection, and spiritual awakening? Most importantly, a religion or spiritual practice should work for you. and only you can decide what that means, but here are some suggestions for you to consider. Your spiritual practice gives you freedom and space to find your own answers, even if those answers disagree with the spiritual teachings. You are not judged, punished, or excluded for thinking differently or questioning ideas. Your spiritual practice moves you towards love and the ones, providing a space for you to forgive yourself and others as you let go of old, heavy baggage which no longer serves you. The spiritual teachings uplift you to new heights of awareness while also inspiring you to express yourself. Spiritual beliefs are offered through lessons of empowerment and not through fear of karma, punishment, or any form of disempowerment. Nor should you be neglected through guilt, obligation, or impending regret. Your spiritual teacher does not encourage dependency on them, tell you what to do, how to think, or make other spiritual teachings wrong or than. You're not asked to judge, reject, or exclude others in order to remain in the religion, nor are you punished. For loving those who don't, and nor are you punished for loving those who don't obey the rules of your religion. You feel honored and respected by your teacher and peers, and you never feel as if the teacher or spiritual practice has power over you or that your worthiness is in question. Your, pra- your practice empowers you to discover who you really are and supports you in developing an intimate personal relationship with the divine where you experience yourself as unconditional love. If your intention is spiritual awakening, um, your spiritual practice will not only empower you to discover the door of awakening, but also, also encourage you to let go so that you can enter. In order to fully awaken, you must be willing to let go of even the sacred practice that got you in. bottom line is, does your spiritual practice direct you inward? Does it make you feel closer to the divine empowering. Um, These are all optional. Um, you can experience these things and not believe in God. You can experience these things and believe in God. And you can experience these things and be ag- agnostic. You can experience these things and be a deist. Those things are true, too. Uh, what I'm about to read to you is optional. Deal with it as you wish. Don't throw the baby out with the or If you have left your religion or you're thinking of leaving, don't confuse leaving the religion with leaving God. Just as the saying goes. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't throw God out with the religion. God has been tainted by all sorts of this. God has been by all sorts of disempowering beliefs, from crazy rules to unreasonable nonsense, and everything in between. You can leave all that behind and you can find God on your own terms, in a way that feels particularly right for you. If you choose to throw the baby out with the bathwater, you are equally beautiful
0: and equally wonderful. If you feel like, hey. I'm done both religion and God. I honor your decision. I don't judge you harshly. We're cool. Um, as for myself, I've redefined God on my own terms. That's what I chose to
1: do for my healing. Everybody's healing It's different. And if you don't do that, that's okay. Your healing is your healing, and your healing is right for you. That's how
0: it's uh, Losing community. Um,
1: sometimes we stay in a religion well past its expiration date because we leave. It probably also means that we must leave our community. Tolerating rules and dog were no longer fit for us might seem like a small price to pay in exchange for the love and supportive community. But that price is much higher than it appears. If you're compromising your freedom, hiding your true feelings, or constricting expression in order to be accepted in a community, sooner or later you will likely experience deep spiritual wounds that arise from betraying your own true spirit. Yes, there might be a period of time where you don't have support of community, but I promise, your know, most ideal community is out there waiting for you. A massive ways of people all over the world are waking up and leaving situations and environments that no longer fit just like you, they are looking for that place where they belong. But it's time to come together to form empowering paradigms and community where we can
0: all thrive and be who we came here to be. Um, I was able to
1: find, I was able to find and rediscover God on my own terms without relations What I choose to do. Um, I don't believe in the biblical religious God. I believe in the Unitarian Universalist humanist God. And I, um,
0: truly mean that from my heart. Um, I think
1: God is within all of us, especially good people, whether they are believers or non-believers, I think that God is within all believers that are good people and all non-believers that are good people and and all unbelievers that are good people and all sincere secrets for God that are good people. Um, When I say God, I think of endearment,
0: I think of empathy, my favorite E words, and I think of generosity and gentleness, my favorite G words.
1: That's what I mean when I say God is in all of us. Religion teaches you to rely on the outside for the inside. I don't go outside of myself. I go within myself. All of the wisdom of my life, past, present, and future is within me. I don't need to go to uh, religious leadership for that.
0: I don't need to go to pious persons for that either. So I did experience my waking up from
1: religion. I experience it every day. I you know, the programming religion, I'm healing from that. Installing beliefs and healing from that to take advantage of the young and vulnerable and healing from that, sacrificing power and change for salvation and healing from that, grew up by a condition of worth I'm, he- I'm healing from that, no room for doubt or
0: questions and healing for that um, especially no room for doubt or questions. If you believe that your fellow practitioners will ostracize you,
1: report to religious leaders who likely. You will not likely share any feelings of doubt about the religion when it's leaders. will silently keep your questions on uncertainty to yourself, never knowing that your friend, neighbor, or family members feel the same way. Judging if you're being judged supports division. As the saying goes, divide and conquer, and at all costs, keep those already conquered from coming together in rebellion. Silent separation allows religious agendas to operate on notice. I read that before, but that part really stood out to me. I, I'm healing from the no
0: room for doubt or questions. I'm healing from the use of. Judgment. I'm healing from the exclude non-believers,
1: and all those questions when it talked about here. Suggestion: Consider all those suggestions are in my life, and they're all working out well for me. Losing community, I had that I lost the religious community. And now I've gained a non Christian community. And a lot of people who are Christian and religious have been a, are a part of my community because they really do love me and care for me and don't um, assault me nor
0: insult me. So that's a positive thing. Um, You know, in a sense, I did throw the baby out the bathwater.
1: I threw out the biblical religious God. I inserted in the Unitarian Universalist Humanist
0: God. Um, I threw out
1: conservative theology religion, and I inserted in Secular spirituality. That's exactly what I did. I also inserted in oneness and wholeness. I threw out
0: the us versus them culture that I was raised in. I am so (laughs) free. So, what else do I want to say to you all? I want to talk about the Freedom from Religion Foundation. Here are their
1: court victories. Halting federal funds to a Bible school offering no academic classes. I'm, I, I, I support that. Ending millions of tax dollars used to repair and maintain churches. Uh, I support that. Halting a government chaplaincy to minister to state workers. I support that. Barring direct subsidy to religious schools. I support that. Winning a legal challenge, ending 51 years of the illegal Bible instruction in Rhea County, Dayton, Tennessee Public Schools. I support that. Winning a federal court decision, overturning a law declaring Good Friday state holiday. I support that. Successfully, soon the Trump administration opens executive order against church politicking. I support that. Successfully, soon the IRS to reinstitute investigations of of church politicking.
0: I support that. I do because I think
1: that that we have given houses of worship too much power. That is just unacceptable. Um, we're not we're not supposed to um, force beliefs on people. We're supposed to share our views, whether it's up or not, is okay. And we keep going about our lives being respectful. Um, okay. FF. FFRF's lawsuits have ended a wide range of egregious First Amendment violations. From our very first lawsuit, halting religious postal cancellations, for um, that, to winning the first federal case challenging faith-based funding of a, pre, of a pervasively sectarian agency, I support that. FFRF court cases protect the wall of separation, good. Uh, FFRF lawsuits have removed Ten Commandments and Jesus paintings from public schools, Good. Stop city slash school board prayer. Good. Halted school subsist subsidy of child evangelism. Good. Remove nativity scenes and Christian cross from public property. Good. And stop censorship of free thought displays, literature, distribution, license, place, and indications. Good.
0: Good, because I just, I feel like I don't like the fact that people have to pay for what they don't believe. It's like the God we trust on currency. I'm not for that. It's like when we have tax exemption from
1: religious entities and institutions. I'm not for I, I'm for I'm not for that.
0: I'm not for that at all. I'm not for that at all. Um, FFRF and its robust legal department act on countless state-slash-church entanglements on behalf of its members
1: in the public. Through litigation education and the pervasive advocacy, FFRF ends hundreds of violations each year, such as prayers and proselytizing public schools and events, public funding for religious purposes and religious symbols on public property. FFRF has successfully settled countless religion in the public's religion the public schools, case in favor of non-religious students and secular education. These, these include ending long, hour-long prayers imposed on Puerto Rico students and commencing prayers at a big university. I love all those things. I love all of their success. I do. I'm really, really glad about these things. That's pretty much what I wanted to say
0: on that one. Um, Hmm. So what I'm doing now is seeing. All right, I'm going in. I'm really going in on this one, all right?
1: Helen Nor- Noronha, the mindjournal.com, philosophy says Spiritual. The problem with faith, 11 ways religion is destroying humanity. Religion is destroying humanity and has been a part of humanity since the first astronomers appeared into the sky and created elaborate stories to define the movements of our universe. It made its ways into our minds as we fearfully created devils and demons to explain the danger of working in the darkness of night. It is both enchanting and us as we attempt to define our world with the information available to us as we work our way through history. However, things are quickly changing. For a growing number of us worldwide, what was once indescribable is now easily explained by the vast data we have gathered as we work towards refining our understanding. We are becoming painfully aware that although religions gave us a starting place for thinking about how our world functions. They no longer serve us in that process and, in fact, have left a trail of destruction in their story path. Here are 11 ways religions destroying humanity. One, the assumption of truth. Most of our world's major religions each assume that it is their faith, and all that is the absolute truth, and refuse to conceive that those traditions may be mistaken. Instead, they discover ways to force conflicting information to adapt to their own doctrine, no matter how effective the evidence is at actually disproving the rationality of that particular religion. Many religious adherents have no problem understanding the irrationality of others' beliefs, or are they able to apply the same logic when observing their own doctrine? Instead, every effort is made to justify why it is there and only their religion that is void of any fault. If they were to observe their own faith with the same set of scrutinizing eyes that they see through when evaluating others' faiths, F-A-I-T-H-S, They will understand what many of us have already concluded. All of our religious texts are written by people, not gods. They are the stories and traditions that we create in order to explain our world in the past. For instance, the majority of Christians would agree that the idea of Muhammad riding a flying horse into the heavens is an impossible fairy tale. while simultaneously they are unable to see how their own story of a talking snake or a man living inside a fish for three days is also impossible. We know that horses can't fly. They are not airborne animals. They are land animals. We know that snakes can't speak. They lack the vocal cords to produce the sounds necessary for speech. We also know that the digestive mechanisms of the fish would make it impossible for a man to actually live, let alone breathe, inside of a fish for three days. These stories, something with deep and purposeful meanings, cannot be understood, let alone correctly interpreted for beneficial use, when they are assumed to be true rather than for the allegories that they are. The problem with this is that by insisting that an obviously fabricated story is absolute truth, the opportunity of arriving at the actual truth is greatly diminished. It creates a world where stories are placed above reality and reality is never within reach. It creates a mental mindset in people that is driven by misinformation, then passed on to future generations where misguided concepts are perpetrated. Two, the promise of reward. The faith of many followers hinges on the idea that there is some reward for devotion to their deity. For the Islamic gentleman, it is a promise of virgins after death. For the Christian, it is a perfect place of infinite peace and comfort. For Hindus, it is escaping the grueling task of reincarnation, and for the Buddhist, it is reaching Nirvana. However, many, how many of these same enthusiasts will subscribe to the religion if there were not a reward for their commitment? Without a reward, the faith does not carry the same power to control its congregate. There must be a conclusion to every religious story, a reason for carrying the belief to its completion. It's not difficult to understand why this is necessary for the ongoing function of a religion. Human beings are rarely motivated to commit to anything without a reward for their commitment. We work diligently through school for the reward of a career and money. We work hard in our relationships for the reward of satisfying unity with other human beings. We work attentively on our goals for the gratification of living a purposeful, meaningful, and accomplished life. We take time daily to exercise and eat healthy to maintain a fit and healthful body. We humans do everything to reap the rewards of doing that thing. And those who create the religions our world follows know this well. Without the reward, the base of followers cannot sustain itself. This is a problem because it keeps people hinged to a system that they can, that they never question because they're so immersed in the promise of the reward that they never stop to question if the reward is real or human conceived. Religion keeps people bonded to beliefs that may actually hinder human progress rather than helping procure our growth. It prevents individuals from progressing beyond antiquated thinking. Only they cannot see the problem because no matter what personal sacrifice made in this life, there's a reward in the end. Even Even if they can't see that reward until the life they now, have is gone from them. Three, the superiority complex. Religion enables people to act callously and inflict mental punishment on those they label evil, without consequence to their hatred, and then permits them to honestly believe that their hatred is defensible as good moral conduct. Anonymous person said that this is the illus- this is the illusory carrot. This is the illusory carrot of religion, an eternal reward for an elected few. And in, fine, and in finite punishment for everyone else, it is a narcissistic mindset that keeps adherents both comforted and terrified. A virtual mental prison to which the follower is consciously unaware. It saturates their relationships, often keeping those relationships from ever from ever truly holding any love. And kindness when those they interact with do not agree with their religious interpretation. It's not always completely true for more kindly religious adherents, but unfortunately. Even the kinder followers can sometimes hold internal judgments against their non-believing counterparts, simply for not believing. Four, the usefulness of control. Most religious supporters are not mindful of the fear that has been instilled in them, often from birth. It is a fear that is so subtle that it goes undetected for much of the followers' life. It is so deeply embedded that it is not even recognized as fear, but as true, when in reality it is a most destructive form of control. For those who take the time to study the origins of religious beliefs, they are well aware of how, when, and for what purpose religion began. They are aware of the common themes and beliefs during the time the religion was created. They know what literary archetypes the religion was taken from in order to create the new doctrine. They understand the historic flow of language and the written word and how it has influenced our world, including our many religions. Unfortunately, a great number of religious followers are either prevented from or discouraged from learning the truth about how the religious system was established. This is highly evident in modern theocracies where citizens are restricted from viewing numerous websites that will offer the information that would reveal the truth
0: about the origin of their religion. There is a fundamental reason why many religions insist that their fathers do not look
1: elsewhere for answers to life's questions. It is the question that leads to the answers that free people give them the understanding of the whole picture rather than narrow view from a small corner of their mind? It is the refusal to ask the questions that keeps them devoted to one specific answer? Take away the questioning and you assure a future of followers. How do you take away the questioning? You make everything else evil. You make everything scary and frightful so that the followers is actually afraid of swaying. From that one answer they have been given, you take away their desire to ask the questions. Why do many believers refuse to study ancient religions, culture, science, and philosophy? Why do they refuse to befriend or feel scornfully towards those who do not share their beliefs? Why are these things, these other people around them, these conflicting ideas automatically wrong? Have they been taught this mindset? Former believers are most aware that the reason for this fear is that their God, their family, or peers, religious leaders in their own internal self-judgment will be discontent with their, quote-unquote, inappropriate curiosity. They fear that it is, quote-unquote, the enemy tempting them away from their faith by introducing them to ideas that conflict with their religion's version of the truth. They have been taught often from birth that questioning is wrong, that seeking answers and gaining knowledge was not meant for us. These concepts are so deeply embedded in their thought that they can even feel guilty just thinking about questioning that thing. Many rarely stop to think about why they have been discouraged from asking questions and understanding things outside the religious sphere. S-P-H-E-R-E. Does the truth need restrictions if it is the truth? Does the truth need restrictions if it is the truth? No, not unless the truth is being hidden in order to perpetuate the misconception in order to reap the benefits of the purpose of hiding that truth. This becomes, overwhelming op- this becomes overwhelmingly obvious to those who do ask the questions and honestly think about the answers. How obvious this becomes when we recognize how hiding the truth can profit those who discourage their followers, who discourage their followers from questioning the validity of their beliefs. How well we know what a profitable superstition this fable of Christ has been for us Pope Leo X. 1513-1521. Even those who have chosen to leave a religion must deal with the remnants of fear until it's been sufficiently purged from their life, that is, until they constantly choose to stop believing in monsters and ghosts and demons and the devil and feathered angels and ask the questions that they have spent much of their life needlessly fearing. When you keep people from asking questions, you maintain control of them. Kings and queens know this, religious leaders know this, governments who restrict internet access that provides many of those answers know this, the wise know this, it's time religious followers know this too. It's okay to ask questions, it's okay to find answers. Asking questions is where you truly find freedom. Number five, the distraction of division. As most propagandists understand, by separating individuals from their peers, they're usually able to think more clearly and logically about the information being presented to them. However, when consistently surrounded by their peers, if they are not cautious, they may likely fall prey to being persuaded into believing the truth that is not true at all. Religion depends on this human herd mentality in order to maintain its stronghold. When you keep a person within a specific religion, force the ideas of that group, and then, and then make everyone else outside of the group somehow immoral, maintaining control of hatred towards others is effortless. The best way to do this is by teaching followers the religion's concepts from birth, then reinforcing those ideas throughout the entirety of their life. Religion segregates people into clusters of believers and non-believers, making human unity and peace nearly impossible. It teaches people that those who disagree with them on a variety of life's issues are perceptively evil and unworthy of their friendship or even of their humanity. The problem with this is that it perpetuates a cycle of division in societies. That division causes an insurmountable distraction and enables the internal corruption that destroys nations. Those in power are well aware that a community divided amongst itself has no strength to withstand tyranny or corruption, but a society unified and aware is able to make lasting changes to benefit all. For human unity and peace to ever become a part of our experience, we must become aware of how our beliefs divide us and work to reconcile this division by placing our humanity above our religious contentions, and by placing our humanity above our religious contentions. Six, the threat of theocracy. Many individuals support religious leaders in the concepts, not less the, the impact that a theocracy will have on their own lives and freedoms. Some people simply follow certain political and religious leaders and trust they have their best interests in mind, but in reality, the agenda they support will both further corrupt and further oppress their own country and its people. A modest study of modern and past the, 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 theocratic societies easily demonstrates how oppressive religious governed countries are towards their people. How many more societies do we need to watch crumble, break the strain, go hold of religious oppression? How many more women are to be disparaged, mutilated, and controlled by governments whose religious rule makes such atrocities acceptable? How many more religiously motivated wars, massacres, stonings, bombings, inquisitions, witch hunts, crusades, bigotry, intentional suppression of knowledge, and tyrannical and inhumane policies that we need to experience before we find and realize that theocratic government rule is a horrific way to live as a citizen? This is the threat of theocracy. Number seven, the illusion of love. Is it? There may be some parts that describe love and encourage positive relationships amongst members of the human race, but what about all the other parts? Are we to ignore some things and only identify with the good? Here's the problem. Many of our most revered religious texts have hundreds of verses where the deity of the story literally instructs people to abduct and rape young girls whose family members they have just murdered, killed innocent. I'm sorry. Ooh, I gotta repeat all this. This, whoo, here we go. Here's the problem. Many of our most revered religious texts have hundreds of verses where the deity of the story literally instructs people to abduct and rape young girls whose family members they have just murdered, kill disobedient children, kill disobedient women, commit genocide and infanticide, subdue and silence women, commit incest, oppress mass communities, force marriage on rape victims, torture people, enslave people, and loot and pillage entire societies, all by the instruction of or in the name of their God. This how religion is destroying humanity. Here's the bigger problem. It's one thing that these words are written, but it's a terrifying thought that many people in this world actually excuse this behavior simply because a God they worship did it or authorized it. They rationalize that this behavior is acceptable if an all-knowing being approves of it or that their God was punishing quote-unquote sinful people who did not agree with the same teachings they follow. This enables atrocious people to justify Inhumane actions, if they commit those actions in the name of their God, many even go as far as to change the meaning of the quite plainly written words to mean something else than what is written outright in order to justify the action rather than facing
0: reality of what their text is actually communicating. Here we go. Some more. If a human being were to commit these same types
1: of offenses as listed above, he would lay them sadistically insane and sentence them to death. Yet many dismiss the corrupt nature of these horrifically unethical crimes when it, when it applies to a deity. In their defense, many people are raised with their religious background talk that is completely about love. At the same time, the religious leaders that instruct them do not even attempt to discuss the negative characteristics of their texts often when they do it's glossed over and never getting the full thought as to the magnitude of what is being described. If we really thought about it, we would be able to draw the same conclusions for the wrongdoings of our man-made duties as we do for those human beings who choose to commit similar hideous acts. Instead, the most horrific parts of our text are ignored or sugarcoated and then wrapped in an illusion and feds the people in a mental package labeled, quote-unquote, God is love. It is not love And it skews our interpretation of love when we agree that sadistic and violent acts against people are justified because a God instructed those actions. A scenario to consider. Suppose you were to have a serious conversation with a parent who told you that since their child did not obey, love, and trust them, they were going to take their child to the basement and burn him until he learned his lesson. Would you turn that parent in to child protective services for, for potential child abuse? If you heard or read that some parent had tortured their child for not behaving, what would you think of that parent? How would you feel for the child who endured that punishment? Of course, you would turn the parent in. Of course, you would feel awful to hear about such a tragic story. You would want to protect the child because you know that no loving human being would ever do that to their child, no matter how awful they behave. Yet children across the world are forced to endure hideous mental intrusions on a consistent basis in one of our world's largest belief structures. If they do not believe in their religious deity, he will take them down to hell and torture them forever and ever. They will live in a place of fear and anguish for eternity. This is how religion is destroying humanity. If you would not threaten this to your own child as a punishment you personally would inflict upon them, why tell them someone else will? Is it acceptable because it's not you who will do it? This is how religion is destroying humanity. Another scenario to consider. If your friend told you that she was raped, that her rapist paid her father for the injustice, for the injustice, and is now forcing her to marry the person who raped her, what would you tell your friend? Would you encourage her to follow through with the marriage or would you encourage her, leave both the rapist and her father behind and move on with her life? would you help her find a safe place to go in order to flee the situation, or would you encourage her to follow through with the dreadful plans? Of course you would discourage your friend from following through with such a horrible situation for her life. You would likely even encourage her to file charges against the perpetrator, yet this is the exact instructions found in one of our world's most popular holy texts. One of many scriptures only re- recently coming to the forefront of religious debates as countless people are becoming more aware of the unethical ideas written in many of our ancient books. See Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 28 and 29, NLT, The Living Translation, that version. If you have to explain or justify why a horrible atrocity was committed by the deity worship, what does love really mean to you? Love is, you have to think it out clearly for yourself. A hey, justification for inequality. A simple and honest study of our world's theocracies in countries such as America, where those issues are being debated, reveals how our holy texts are used to discriminate against women, LGBTQI persons, and foreigners. Our top three world religious texts are full of discrimination against these groups. In fact, this openly used as justification for that discrimination. Religion facilitates erroneous rationalization of the attempts to remove basic rights from others. It prevents people from living in peace as a community and within their own lives. It forces entire groups of people to work tirelessly to create and preserve rights that should be available to them already. Many of our religions treat women as subhuman property rather than the part of the human species that gives life to every one of us a position that deserves respect. Many of our world's countries have so drastically restricted the rights of women that they are not allowed to attend school to earn an education, drive a car, be seen in public without a male family member, hold a career, or even speak their own thoughts. And, and we, this has to be added, they're not allowed to even wear revealing clothing. They are overly covered up. Excessive conservative clothing, if they will, because they live in a patriarchal society where if a woman dresses quote unquote normally like in America, then somehow her being raped is her fault, and somehow she inspired male lust because it's low opinion of men. Men are a bunch of horn dogs. Nothing that could be done. So patriarchy means lots of girls and women being raped, beaten up, and killed, and abducted. In each instance where this gender-based bigotry is enforced, it's always attached to a religiously-based belief system. And another thing, women and girls, they are mistreated if they consider getting an abortion because someone they did not want to impregnate them didn't impregnate them. That could be a rapist, that could be ancestral, so on and so forth. Again, patriarchy is that pure evil, right? And the marry a rapist law happens in a lot of those places in the world. Some aspects of the deep South in North America, again, patriarchy is that pure evil. Religion also treats the LGBTQIA community like myself with disdain. To the point where some churches prescribe death as a punishment not following that religion's definition of what sex should look like. This is also how religion is destroying humanity. The problem with this is that he, the problem with this is that homosexuality can be found in many species, not just amongst humanity. Anyone who has done their research knows this. Unfortunately, religion is not caught up to this reality. Although homosexuality has existed for millennia, religion still persists in finding what comes natural to much of nature. Is it a God that gave us permission to interrogate and murder people based on sexual orientation? Or is it the people who wrote our religious texts and simply, did, and simply did not understand or agree with that part of nature? Sadly, our religious texts have been used to discriminate against a vast assortment of people, including tribes, minorities, and foreigners. People outside of religion's belief structure or cultural background have been tortured, and enslaved, and stripped of their human rights, all in the name of a God and the religion that God represents. This is also the reason for how religion is destroying humanity. Religion gives followers justification for treating others who are not like them human in inhumane ways, enables our world to perpetuate the cycles of hatred toward others and justify our efforts in restricting the happiness
0: of our fellow human beings. Nine, the subjugation of advancement. We are moving towards
1: a time where we no longer need to base our ideas on things that we cannot see or explain, faith, F A I T H. We can explain much more than ever and our ability to explain our world is expanding rapidly. We have a plethora of information available to us today. Information enables us to become aware of the origins of our religions, the origins and functions of our planet and of our universe. We understand how weather works, and that is not simply the anger of our gods being poured upon us, as our early ancestors believed. We can interpret weather patterns, send people into space, and predict future atmospheric, economic, planet, planetary, and biological disruptions, and much, mo- and much, much more. Unfortunately, how religion is destroying humanity, and religion has never been much a friend to human knowledge human knowledge and advancement. Even now, we are plagued by leaders who seek to oppress our access to and progression of our knowledge. Religion is no position that it is not humankind's of place to understand things to seek knowledge of our world. In fact, it makes sense that understanding wrong and it's not difficult to find follows with even quote text supporting why we should not explore our world, ask questions and look for answers. This is a religious tactic that keeps people in ignorance and has worked for thousands of years. Since we know that it is people who wrote the concepts that make up our holy text, it makes much more sense that it is not God who wants to keep us in ignorance. It is those who wrote our holy books, created our religious doctrines, and insist that knowledge and the pursuit of knowledge is evil. Religion perpetuates ignorance in societies, it hinders humanity's mental progression, thus the quality of our, of our lives, health, and environments, thus religion is destroying humanity. 10. The Fear of End Times For thousands of years, religion has used the fear of end times to control the masses, but began this mythology that told gruesome stories of horrific end to our world, has evolved into periodic religious mania of an impending doom lurking above the future of humanity. Fortunately, we have grown enough in our understanding to realize that prophecies of war, famine, atmospheric disruptions, pandemics, and an expulsion of redundant belief structures are effortless formulations, where one comprehends that these occurrences have been and will remain a repetitive element of the human experience. In other words, it is not difficult to predict the future when you understand how religion is destroying humanity and human beings think of how nature functions. Anyone who understands natural and the mind of human beings can make a fairly accurate prediction of what will occur 10, 20, 100, even 5,000 years from now. History does repeat itself. Nature repeats itself. This is the cyclical part of life. We understand the cycle. You're never shocked by the result. Lastly, number 11, but we'll get to that in a few the problem is we're still living amongst an assortment of end times, theories, and religious fables that insist we're living in that time. Strangely, every generation since the stories were created lives in that time. Even more menacing is how an entire community of believers can completely ignore the time frame in which their own text plainly states that the horrid event will occur and then apply the same story to every future generation. Why? Because the story always perpetuates itself. It must perpetuate itself in order to survive. If the story is fulfilled, the story ends, and we all move on. It must continue generation after generation or to live on in the minds of human beings. This is how religion works. Here's the painful truth. When you have a story that loads of people believe, they will absolutely be some people who have the power and the best interest in making that story appear as fact. This doesn't make the prediction true. It makes it a purposeful effort. It's a problematic illusion where those who want it to be true work to make it true. and Those who are unaware of the work others have done to make the illusion appear real believe it is real. If our world is truly going to explode in a fiery furnace of wrath and agony will be by our own hands when we destroy one another by our human hatred or it will be by the mechanisms of our universe a common way planets and stars actually experience their end times in quotations 11 lastly now the oppression of terror it would be easy for some to look at the violence of religion today and point fingers at one specific religion the propagandists that dominate many of our news outlets ensure this. But the truth is, many of our religions have already asserted themselves through force and violence in the past. This is not really a modern problem by which religion is destroying humanity. Humanity's most vicious ambitions have been carried out in the name of gods no one has ever seen and beliefs. Followers are not willing to question and investigate. Until humankind learns to more closely examine their beliefs, wars wage ignorance will begin to break our species and prevent lasting peace. Our history is full of examples of this religion human dilemma, and it's even written in the pages of some of our own holy texts. It is a truth that many deny because it's easier to deny atrocity than to face it, especially when that barbarism has been committed by this very same faith that we follow. Our religions excuse the terror and oppression we inflict upon our fellow human beings. It's time our excuses are called out for what they are. The rational thinking based upon archaic concepts that no longer serve our human advancement towards a sustainable and peaceful future. It's time to let go of rise above the outdated and quote exploits of our past that we inherited from our ancestors and realize that our early misinterpretations of our world do not have to define the future of humanity. We have grown, we have reached a time in our history where the misunderstandings of the past must be brackets out and the truth about the origins of our early beliefs must be revealed. It's time that our world's religions face the tragic the course of their past and make honest progression towards love and kindness for all of humanity. Our world, our peace, and our growth all depend upon us and our ability to move forward in our understanding. It's time to embrace our humanity and cultivate the harmonious future we all deserve. I agree. Those are all the 11 ways religion is destroying humanity. I've seen it up close and personal. So yes, Helen Noronha, the art, The person, Rub Starke, she—I don't know—I don't know her gender pronouns. Helen is right. Helen is absolutely right with all the evidence. Religion destroying humanity. I've seen it up close and personal. I've seen it happen in my life, the lives of other people.
0: It's Helen is articulating facts. Okay. So. Basically, I'm going to keep this short and plain because, you know, um, I don't want to take too long, but let's just say throughout his
1: life, King James had close relationships with male courtiers, which has caused debate among historians about their exact nature. In Scotland, Anne-Murray was known as the King's
0: Mistress.
1: And um ascension in England is peaceful and scholarly act to contrasts strikingly with the bellicose and taste behavior of Elizabeth, as afflicted by the contemporary epigram Rex Few Elizabeth, non- E.S.T. Regina Lacko Elizabeth was king. Now James
0: is queen. Um, it is possible that J- King James was bisexual. Okay. Let me see. Let me get back to King James. Let me. Uh,
1: You know, it's also been said that King James was gay. King James' favorite male lovers were the Earl of Somerset and the Duke of Beckingham, Ben Edward, I could have expedited Bible. Uh, Thomas Hetward, Earl of Suffolk, in a letter of 1611. Later, James fell in love with a poor young Scotsman named Robert Carr. The king leans on his car's arm, pinches his cheek, smooths his ruffled garment, and when he looks upon the car, directs his speech to others. How many folks know that King James who commissioned the King James Bible to whom was dedicated, loved men, and had sex with him. At the age of 13, James fell in love with his male cousin Esme Stewart, whom he made Duke of Lennox. James deferred to Esme to the consternation of his ministers 15 and 2, James was kidnapped, forced to issue a proclamation against his lover, and sent him back to France. (sighs) So, if you are traditional minded, do not read the King James Version of the Bible. That's all I'm going to say. And then you have, oh God, you know what? The Nine Circles of Hell. Dante's Inferno. Let me be. Let, we, you know what? Yes,
0: we, we we gonna read this. We gonna read all of this. Um, Inferno. The first part
1: of Dante's Divine Conduct, inspired the latest Diane Brown's best of the same title, describes the poet's vision of hell. The story begins with the narrator, who is the poet himself, being lost in a dark wood where he's attacked by three beasts which he cannot escape is rescued by the Roman poet Virgil who was sent by Patrice Dante's ideal woman. Together they begin the journey to the underworld or the nine circles of hell. First circle, limbo. Dante's first circle of hell is rejected by virtuous non-Christians and, and unbaptized pagans who are punished with eternity in an inferior form of heaven. They live in a castle with seven gates which symbolize the seven virtues. Here Dante sees many prominent people from classical antiquity, such as Homer, Socrates, Aristotle, Cicero, Hippocrates, and
0: Julius Caesar.
1: Second circle lust. In the second circle of hell, Dante and his companion, Virgil find people are overcome by lust. They are punished by being blown violently back and forth by strong winds, Preventing them from finding peace and rest, strong winds symbolize the restlessness of a person who's led by the desire for fleshly pleasures. Again, Dante sees many notable people from history and mythology, including Cleopatra, Tristan, Helen of Troy, and others who were adulterous during
0: their lifetime. Third circle, gluttony. Reaching the third circle of hell, Dante and Virgil
1: find souls of Glutton's are overlooked by a warm to Cerberus. Sentence in a circle of hell are punished by being forced to lie in a vile slush that is produced by never-ending icy rain. The vile slush symbolizes personal degradation of one who will in food, drink, and other worldly pleasures, while the inability to see others lying nearby represents the Glutton's selfishness and coldness. Here, Dante speaks to a character called who also tells him that the Gulfs, a fraction supporting the Pope, will defeat and expel the Gabellines, a fraction supporting the Emperor to which Dante adhered from Florence, which happened 1302 before the poem was written after 1308. Fourth circle, greed. In the fourth circle of hell, Dante and Virgil the souls of the people are punished for greed. They divide into two groups those who hoarded possessions and those who lavishly spent it, jousting. They use great weights as a weapon, pushing it with their chests, which symbolizes their selfish drive for fortune during their lifetime. The two groups that are, got, that are guarded by a character called Pluto, probably the ancient Greek ruler of the underworld, are so occupied with their actions that the two posts don't try to speak to them. Here Dante says to see many clergymen, including cardinals and popes, fifth circle, anger. The fifth circle of hell is where the wrathful... And sullen are punished for their sins. Transforming the boat by villages, not taking virtually the furious fighting each other on the surface of the river Styx, and the sullen gurgling beneath the surface of the water. Again, the punishment reflects the type of the sin committed during their lifetime. While passing through, the poets are approached by Philippo Argenti, a prominent Florentine politician who confiscated Dante's property after his expulsion from
0: Florence. Fifth, sixth Circle of Heresy. When reaching the sixth circle of hell,
1: Dante and Verdictly Heretics who are condemned to eternity in flaming tooth. Here Dante talks with a couple of Florentines. Varenata Deglai, Libertine Calva, de Calva but he also sees other notable historical figures, including the ancient Greek philosopher Epictorus, Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, and Pope Anastasius II. The latter, however, is a, is according to some modern scholars condemned by Dante as a heretic by mistake. Instead, as some scholars argue, the poet probably meant the Byzantine Emperor Anastasius I. Seventh circle, violence. The seventh circle of hell is divided into three rings. The outer ring houses murderers and others who were violent to other people and property. Here, Dante sees of the Great Disputed, Denetius I of Syracuse, Guy D. Montfort, and many other notable historical and mythological figures, such as the Centaurus, sank into a river of boiling blood and fire. In the middle ring, the poet sees suicides have been turned into trees, and, br- and b- bushes, which are fed upon the heart which are fed upon harpies. But he also sees here profligates, chased and torn to pieces by dogs in the inner ring are blasphemers and what a lot of people who are very traditional archaic minded sodomites result residing in a desert of burning sand and burning rain falling from the sky for eighth circle fraud, the eighth circle of hell. Is decided by the fraudulent. Dante and Virgil reach it on the back of Charon, a flying monster with different natures, just like the fraudulent. This circle of hell is divided into ten bulges or stony, or stony ditches with bridges between them. In bulge one, Dante sees panders and Seducer. Bulge two, he finds flatterers. After crossing the bridge to bulge three, he and Virgil see those who are guilty of sin money. After crossing another bridge, between the ditches of bulge four. They find sorcerers and false prophets in Bulgea 5, are housed, corrupt politicians in Bulgaria 6, are hypocrites, and the remaining four digits, Deontay finds hypocrites in Bulgaria 7, thieves in Bulgaria 7, evil counselors and advisors in Bulgaria 8, divisive individuals in Bulgaria 9, and various false fires such as alchemists, perjurers, and counterfeits in Bulgaria 10. Ninth Circle Treachery. The last Ninth Circle of Hells fight into four rounds going to the seriousness of the sin, Though all residents are frozen in the icy lake, those committed more severe sin are deep within the ice. Each of the four rounds is named after an individual who personifies the sin. Thus, round one is named Cana after Cain who killed his brother Abel. Round two is named Antenora after Antenor, of Troy, who were Priam's counselor during the Trojan War. Round three is named Ptolemaea after Ptolemy, son of Ababus. Well, round four is named Judasca, Judetra, after Judas scared the possibly betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Hell yeah, man, these are the things that Godly religious leaders don't tell the congregation, and a lot of them know this stuff. It's just fear keeps
0: them from revealing the knowledge. Um. I think about this stuff. And this is why I just couldn't be
1: in the world of religion anymore. All the mayhem and all the doom and gloom. I'm like, I'm done. This is why, and Dante's Inferno popularized the concept of hell, Protestant and Catholic. And then, real quick, we have the Protestant um,
0: Reformation.
1: Okay, let me briefly
0: discuss this. Okay. The Reformation, alternatively named Protestant Reformation
1: and the European Reformation, was a major movement within Western Christianity in 16th century Europe that posed a religious and political challenge to the Catholic Church, and in particular to papal authority arising from what were perceived to be errors, abuses, and discrepancies by the Catholic Church, The Reformation was the start of Protestantism and the split of the Western Church into Protestantism, and what is now the Roman Catholic Church, it's also considered one of the events that signified the end of the Middle Ages and beginning of the early modern period in Europe. Prior to Martin Luther, there are many earlier Reform movements, although the Reformation is usually considered to have started with the publication of the 95 Theses by Martin Luther in 1517. He was not executed until January 1521 by Pope Leo X. The Edict of Worms of May 1521 condemned Luther and officially banned citizens of the Holy Roman Empire from defending or propagating his ideas. The spread of Gutenberg's printing press provided the means of the rapid dissemination of religious materials in the vernacular. Luther survived after being declared an outlaw due to protection of Elector Frederick the Wise. The initial movement in Germany diversified, and other reformers, such as Huldrych Zwickley, and John Calvin Rose, Key events of the period include Diet of Worms 1521, form, formation of the Lutheran Duchy of Prussia 1525, English Reformation, 1529, onwards, the Council of Trent, 1545-363, the Peace of Augsburg, 1555, Exclamation of Elizabeth I, 1570, Edict of Nantes, 1598, the Peace of Westphalia, 1641, 1648, actually, 1648, the Counter-Reformation, also called the Catholic Reformation, of the Catholic Revival, is the period of Catholic reforms initiated in response to the Protestant Reformation. The end of the Reformation era is disputed. The end of the Reformation era is disputed. That's why you have all these Christian denominations. That's why the Anabaptists were killed by both Protestants and the Catholics in other episodes. So, like I say again, you got Christians killing other Christians. John Calvin approved the execution of heretics. Martin Luther, the anti-Semite, Martin Luther and the Jews if you want to type it in, Uh, hated Jewish people but claimed to serve a Jewish Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And Joseph Smith was a considered a pedophile in our day because he
0: was with a 14-year-old girl and he was a grown man. So these are all
1: the reasons why I left. These are all a lot of the reasons why I left religion. I'm just giving you all the rest because I keep thinking I'm done, but there's more. I know I'm done with this for sure. But there's nothing else to say after this. Um, at, bishops and popes are not biblical. Bad kids are not biblical. God didn't make those decisions. God didn't make those positions. Those are man-made constructs. Those are man-made ideals that are not legally supported. So I just wanted to really say that because I'm going to feel good. And why do non-believers, especially atheists, agnostics, and deists know more about all the other religions more than the adherents of all these other religions? So that means, for example, atheists are out Bible studying Christians. They know more about all the books of the Bible including all the writing genres of the Bible, more than the Christians do. They can can outquote Christians and know more about all the biblical passages, biblical characters, biblical stories, biblical events, biblical history than the Christians do. If they know more about your religion, that's a problem. Good for them and bad for you.
0: Um... Ooh, yes, I'm going there. So okay. They do have religious wars. Okay. In early Christianity, Saint Augustine's concept of just war, rebellion, is
1: ISTEM was widely accepted, but warfare was not regarded as victor- but, but warfare was not regarded as victorious activity. An expression of concern for the salvation of those who killed enemies in battle, regardless of the cause for which they fought, was common. According to historian Edward Peters, before the 11th century, Christians have not developed the concept of holy war, phallum sacrum, whereby fighting self might be considered a penit- penitential and spiritually narratorious act. During the 9th and 10th centuries, multiple invasions occurred, which led some regions to make their own armies to defend themselves and it slowly led to. The emergence of the Crusades, the concept of holy war and terminology such as enemies of God in the 11th century. During the time of the Crusades, some of those who fought in the name of God recognized as the Milites Christi, soldiers or knights of Christ. The Crusades were a series of military campaigns that took place during the 11th through 13th centuries against the Muslim conquest. Originally, the goal was to recapture Jerusalem and the Holy Land from the Muslims and to support the besieged Christian. Byzantine Empire against the Muslim Seljuk expansion to Asia Minor and Europe proper. Later, Crusades were launched against other targets, either for religious reasons, such as the al Crusade, Northern Crusades, or because of political conflict, such as Arab, Aragonese Crusade in 1095 of the Council of Clermont. Pope Urban II raised the level of war from Bellum Iostum. Just war to developed the Holy War in 16th century France, there was a succession of wars, succession of wars between Roman Catholics and Protestants. He John is primarily known as the French Wars of Religion in the first half of the 17th century. The German states, Scandinavia, Sweden primarily, and Poland were besieged by religious warfare in the Thirty Years War. Roman Catholicism and Protestants were triggered in the opposing sides of this conflict, though Catholic France did take the side of the Protestants but purely for political reasons. The Battle of La Navas, the Talosanonic Arab History, as the Battle of Al, you got, took place on July 16, 1212, and was an important turning point in the Reconquista in the Middle history of Spain. The Force of King Alfonso, the
0: uh, numerals again. The forces of
1: King Alfonso VIII of Castile were joined by the armies of his Christian
0: rivals. Sanco
1: Sanco seven of Narvar, Pedro II of Aragon and Alfonso II of Portugal in battle against the big Boer Muslim. Alhambra had conquered to the southern half of the Alberian Peninsula. So people are burned at the stake, You
0: yet the Salem witch trials. Sickening. Sickening. Okay. If
1: you believe any recent acts against you would be linked to your status as an atheist and in any way religious discrimination, ask yourself the following questions. Have you recently expressed your opinion about a religious belief in the workplace? Did you, do you speak openly about your religious beliefs on social media? Were you recently asked any questions about your religious beliefs by a coworker or supervisor? Has there been a drastic change how you treat how you're treated or evaluated? Did the change come after you build your religious beliefs? Did you choose not to participate in a recent event in the workplace because of its religious connotations? Wow. So those are good questions in terms of proving a case against religious discrimination. Employers may not treat employees poorly because they don't hold any religious beliefs. Though it might seem unusual to include atheism with other religious beliefs, the law must do so to protect everyone equally. Religious employees cannot be favored over their non-religious counterparts. Nobody has the right to impose their religious beliefs on you, be they a different version of what you believe are completely different altogether. Though you might not consider yourself religious or you're here to an atheist lifestyle, if you're treated differently in the workplace for any reason linked to religion, it could legally be considered religious discrimination. Protections against religious d- discrimination into both believers and non-believers. I'm talking about atheists experiencing unprotection from religious
0: disc- discrimination in the workplace. So yes, I was talking to you about Christian violence and religious violence when I was expressing myself earlier. Um, like in the early in the early church when I've learned they refused to engage in
1: military, they refused to engage in governmental positions. Um they refused to engage in like police positions. Early church refused to engage in positions of power. And I learned that if someone became a government official, the leaders of the church would ask them to resign because there was a con they thought there was a contradiction
0: between elevating. Um, The, the
1: the country and the leadership of the country and the people of the country, they felt that was contradicted with, but you have to uphold um, having the church and Jehovah's kingdom. It felt like they're diametrically opposed to one another. It's like, how can I be Christian and honor God 100%? That means I won't honor America 100%. But if I honor America 100%, I won't honor God 100%. So our church
0: people like, we don't do any power positions. No military, no police, no government, none of those things. And that's very controversial In the body of Christ today. Um,
1: and real quick, yeah, discrimination against atheists, both at present and historical, includes persecution of discrimination against people identified as atheists. Discrimination against atheists may also comprise negative attitudes, pressures, hostility, hatred, fear, or intolerance towards atheists and atheism. Because atheism can be defined in various ways. Those given against or persecuted on the grounds of being atheists might not have been considered atheists. In a different time and place, 13 Muslim countries officially punish atheism or apostasy by death of the overwhelming majority of the 193 member states in the United Nations. At best, discriminated against citizens who have no belief in a god and at worst can jail them for offenses dubbed blasphemy. In some Muslim um, majority of countries, atheists face persecution and severe penalties such as, such as the withdrawal of legal status or in the case of apostasy capital punishment. Other names, sometimes such discrimination is called atheophobia, atheistophobia, anti-atheist discrimination. I'm just giving you more reasons why I left religion, church, and Christianity.
0: Um, The just war theory. Hmm. Because for years there were Christian pacifism,
1: but then once Christianity became popular, they were like, yeah, Christian violence, religious violence, religious wars, are sanction by God, the whole Armageddon philosophy. Um, wow, I'm almost done. I'm not rushing anything.
0: But you got King James and Witchcraft. Um, I'm gonna explain a little bit what happened. Also, Persecution of witches starting in 16 started
1: in Scotland in 1590 when James, King James was king, the future James one of England. Witchcraft has been had been a criminal offense in Scotland prior to 1590, but actually is suspected, which was limited. However, after 1590, in the last 13 years of the reign of James, Scotland fully accepted Christian witch theory. That when one witch was found, others were hunted out. Prior to 1590, it seems that witchcraft was a minor issue by those in power. 1583, the General Assembly proclaimed that witchcraft carried no punishment despite being outlawed in 1563. Why did this change in 1590? This may have well been James himself. James, well known to adopt a topical issue at the time and develop expert knowledge of it. Prior to 1590, no scholar, theologian, philosopher, or lawyer has shown any real interest in the whole idea of witchcraft. Therefore, the James it was not a fashionable topic. Some of the writings of James 459 do make reference to Satan and devils. However, Chris, Chris, Christina Loner views these as references to the Roman Catholic Church or the Catholic Spain and common practice at the
0: time. Wow. While the witches were accused of classic witchcraft, the main issue as far as James
1: was concerned. Was the plan to murder him, treason? The trials also had a major political aspect as there was an attempt to incriminate Earth Bothwell in the proceedings. One theory put forward is that the whole story is a plot made up by those nobles in Scotland, who want to divide the standing of Bothwell within Scotland and expand this. So However, this cannot be proven. I'll share a couple more things I'll be done with that fifteen nine a key year the year saw the start of a series of trials for treason. 300 witches were accused of gathering to plot the murder of James. It was known that James had a morbid fear of death. Therefore, these trials were of special interest to him, and he decidedly developed a very keen interest in demonology and witchcraft. Evidence for the crimes remains patchy at best. Witches were accused of attempting to drown James by calling up a storm while he was at sea with his new wife. Other charges include trying to kill James by melting a wax effigy of him. That's a case of performing perverted rituals in a church in Berwick, though it's not clear what this had to do specifically with trying to kill the king. However, it did point the way to witchcraft and it's thought that over 100 witches were actually put on trial. They said that a large number were executed, but there is accurate no figure for this. I I had to believe religion now. And i think thankful that y'all understand why. Um... Bruce Garinzer. Bruce, are you hostile towards religion? I've been accused of being hostile towards religion. Am I? Yes or no? I feel the same way. A hostile person when is antagonistic in action, thought, or principle. Am I antagonistic in action, thought, or principle towards all religions? No, neither am I. Am I antagonistic in action, thought, or principle towards some religions? Yes, I am too. I have a number of friends and acquaintances who have all sorts of spiritual religious beliefs. So do I. Do so I think some of their beliefs and practices are strange? Sure. Well, you know. Um, the ones I'm around, um, they're very healthy, so I'm not weirded out by what they think because they are very positive people that I'm around. But their beliefs are theirs and they have every right to believe in that way too. I'm indifferent towards their beliefs. That's Bruce's truth. Friends. I, I cherish their beliefs because even if I don't share them, I see that because they're very positive people, their beliefs are not an issue for me. Beliefs, friends, and acquaintances, spirituality, and religion is personal. And that's cool. That's okay. They have no desire or need to convert the people or argue about whose religion is the true one. And that's okay, too. For the most part, they live according to the live and let live maxim. Those are the kind of people I have around me because I live according to the live and let live maxim myself. I would be an arrogant, I would be an arrogant fool to be hostile toward this kind of religion. I agree with them. I was. I feel that way about myself too. I know that for many people, religious spirituality serve a purpose. That's cool. They, they benefit from their beliefs and practices and many of them find meaning, purpose, and direction to their religions, each to their own. Agreed. However, there's a kind of religion I am hostile towards. Me too. Religions that try to convert. Religions that purport to know in old black letters the truth. Religions, religions that say they are the one true religion in bold letters, pap letters. Religions that invade the lives of others and attempt to force others to believe like they do. Religions that divide people into groups, save slash laws, believer slash unbeliever, elect slash non-elect. Religions that tout their holy book as a divine authoritative, authoritative message to humanity from their God. Religions that kill, rape, steal, and pillage to advance their cause. Religions that try to engender social strife to advance their cause. Religions that engage in culture wars, religions that try to brainwash children to be at home or in school, religions that stir up page towards others because of who and what they are, religions that ignore or are hostile towards the separation of church and state, religions with theocratic ambitions. It is these kinds of religions towards which I am hostile. Me too. I make no apology for this. Me too. I see the hurt and damage done by these religions, and I want to strangle the life out of them, liberating those who are ensnared, oppressed, and controlled. Me too. How can I, as a sentient, caring being, ignore beliefs that cause such physical, that cause such psychological and at times physical harm? I feel the same way. Perhaps the real question is not, is how can I, in capital, bold letters, black letters, not be hostile towards such religions? I feel the right way too. Bruce, religions are you talking about? You know which ones, in, in bold, black letters. They are not hard to spot. You don't need a lot of schooling to know which religions fit the above description. If you need a little more insight to my hostility, please read Why I Hate Jesus. Yes, we're going to read this one more time. I've read this article so many times in so many episodes, but I got to put this out here so people know what the hell I'm talking about. And basically, real quick atheists and agnostics lose custody of their children for lack of belief many times because a lot of the judges and jury. And legal teams are church members and Christians. It's so true. Yes, they'll think that you're perverted, mentally ill. You lose all custody of your child. You can't have contact with your child. And if you speak out against the rulings, sometimes the judge order that you cease all discussion of court proceeding. The man times may not want you to talk to your kid online and in person. It can get really heavy. It can get really. Heavy, like they'll feel like because you're agnostic it's somehow corrupting your children, making your children um, demonic and devilish and worldly and fleshly. It gets horrible, especially if you're in like the Bible Belt.
0: Yeah, it it can get very very ugly
1: that's christian privilege could be that bad as soon as you it's known that you're not a christian even if you did nothing wrong feel like well the only crime is you didn't make your child a christian and you're not taking a kid to church so they'll think that you're you're an abuser or you're a criminal or you're a sex criminal or you're just possessed by the devil and the exorcism oh yeah this stuff is happening If you got one parent is a Christian, the other parent is not a Christian, they'll automatically side with the Christian parent. Even if that Christian parent was clearly in the wrong, they'll still say, hey, you get all the custody of your kid. And you, we want to keep you away from kids because you're a bad role model for children because you're trying to poison them with your lack of belief in God. These, these pure evils do happen. I just want to say that, yes, lots of atheists, agnostics, and secular parents have lost custody over their children's lack of belief. I just had to speak it. Okay. Now, let's finish up with these two things, and then that explains all my views on religion. Okay, this last time I'm reading, it, and I love Bruce's version of Jesus. Here we go. Why I hate Jesus. Who'll be the next American Jesus? I don't hate the flesh and blood Jesus who walked the dusty roads of Palestine. I feel the same way. Nor do I hate the Jesus found in the pages of the Bible. I feel the same way. These Jesuses are relics of the past. I agree. I leave to historians to argue and debate whether these Jesus were real or fiction. I agree. Over the centuries, Christians have created many Jesus in their own image. I agree. This is the essence of Christianity in, in ever-evolving religion bearing little resemblance to what it was even a century ago. I agree. The Jesus I hate is the modern Western Jesus, the American Jesus. The Jesus has been a part of my life for almost 58 years. I agree, and I'll say that Jesus has been a part of my life for almost 30 years, 28 now. The Jesus of bygone eras have no power to harm me. I agree. I feel that way about me. But the modern Jesus, the Jesus of the 300,000 Christian churches that populate every community in America, he has the power to affect my life, hurt my family, destroy my country. I agree, and I with a vengeance hate him. So do I. Over the years, I've had a number of people write about, over the years, I have had a number of people write me about how the modern Jesus is ruining their marriage. I've read those harmful stories too. Um, In many instances, the married couple started out in life as believers, and somewhere along the road of life, one of them stopped believing. The still believing spouse can't understand why the other spouse no longer believes. They make clear that Jesus is still very important to them. And if forced forced to choose between their spouse and family, they would choose Jesus. Simply put, they love Jesus more than they love their families. These are all tough truths. Sadly, these types of marriages usually fail. A husband or a wife simply cannot compete with Jesus. He is the perfect lover and perfect friend. One who is always there for the believing spouse. This Jesus hears the prayers of the believing spouse and answers them. This Jesus, the BFS best friends forever of the bleeding spouse. This Jesus says to believe you must choose me or your spouse. Is this Jesus I hate? I hate that Jesus too. I agree. This Jesus cares nothing for the poor, the hungry, or the sick. I agree. This Jesus has no interest in poor immigrants or unwed mothers. I agree. This Jesus cares for 10 T more than he does a starving girl in Ethiopia. I agree. He cares more about who wins a Grammy or a award than he does poverty-stricken after having food and clean water. I agree. It is this Jesus I hate. I hate that Jesus, too. This Jesus is on the side of the culture warriors. This Jesus hates LGBTQI plus persons and demands that we, I'm putting myself in this, be treated as second-class citizens. This Jesus, no matter the demands that a woman carry her fetus to term. This Jesus, no matter the circumstance, demands that a girl carry her fetus to term two. Child of a rapist afflicted with a serious birth defect, the product of incest, or one-night stand, or promiscuity, or a casual hookup, or drunken sex,
0: Or a product of
1: adultery, or a product of any sex crime, part of any sex that one person or both persons, or the persons involved sexually do not respect each other, not respect each other at all, or they could be products of group sex. Hey, things happen. It matters not. This Jesus is pro life. Yet this same Jesus supports the incarceration of people of color. Often for no other crime than trying to survive. Yet the same Jesus supports the incarceration of poor
0: people, whether they're color or not, often for no other crime than trying to survive. This Jesus
1: is so pro-life, encourages American president politicians to slaughter innocent people. This Jesus demands certain criminals to be put to death by the state. You know the state has legally murdered innocent people. It is this Jesus I hate. I hate that Jesus too. I hate that Jesus too. A lot of people who are
0: racist want incarceration of rich people of color. Proof for thought.
1: This Jesus drives fancy cars, has palaces and cathedrals, and follows who spare no expense to make his house the best mansion in town. This Jesus loves Rolexes, Learjets, and expensive suits. This Jesus sees the multitude and turns his back on them, only concerned with those who say and believe, quote, unquote, the right things. It is this Jesus I hate. I hate that Jesus, too. It is this Jesus who looks at Jews, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, atheists, Gnostics, deists, universalists, secularists, humanists, and skeptics, and I say to them, before you were born, I made sure you could never be in the group that gets the condominiums when they die. This Jesus says, and it is your fault, center person. It is this Jesus who made sure billions of people were born to cultures that worship other gods. It is this Jesus who said, who. Then says, it is their fault that are born at the wrong place at the wrong time. Too bad, this Jesus says, burn forever like a lake of fire." This fire. It is this Jesus I hate. I hate that Jesus too. This Jesus divides families, friends, communities, and, and nations. This Jesus is the means to an end. This Jesus is all about money, power, and control. This Jesus subjugates girls and women, tells widows it's their fault. It ignores the cries of orphans. Everywhere one looks, this Jesus hurts, afflicts, and kills those we love. It is this Jesus I hate. I hate that Jesus, too. Why I can't understand is why anyone loves this Jesus. I can't understand it either. Like a clown on a parade route, he throws a few candies towards those who worship him, promising them that a huge pile of candy awaits them when they die. He lets his followers hunger, thirst, and die, yet he tells them it's for their good. That he loves them has a wonderful plan for their life. This Jesus is all taught, promising the moon and delivering a piece of gravel. Why can't his followers see this? I'm asking the same question myself. Fear me, he tells his followers. I have the keys to life and death. I have the power to make you happen. I have the power to destroy your life. I have the power to take your children, health, and livelihood. I can do these things because I'm the biggest, baddest Jesus ever. I'm a badass Jesus. I put my two cents in that. Fear me and oppress girls and women, immigrants, orphans, homosexuals, transgenders, and atheists, and those uh, from Islamic uh, nations. Refuse my demand, I will rain my judgment down upon your head. But now that I love you, only one is. But know that I love you, only one is, and only one is best for you and yours. It is this Jesus I hate. I hate that Jesus too. Perhaps there's a Jesus somewhere that I could respect, a Jesus who might merit my devotion. I found that. I found that I threw out biblical religious Jesus, and I inserted in Unitarian Universalist Humanist Jesus. So let me make it simple and plain. I believe in Unitarian Universalist Humanist Jesus. I don't believe in biblical religious Jesus. I believe in unitarian, universalist, humanist God. I don't believe in the biblical, religious God. All right? For now, all I see is a Jesus who is worthy of derision, mockery, and hate. Yes, hate. Is this Jesus I hate? We're talking about the kind of Jesus that us versus them-minded, religionists have turned him out to be. It is that Jesus I hate, along with Bruce. Yes, hate. This is Jesus I hate. When the Jesus who generally loves humanity, cares for the least of these shows up, let me know.
0: He's here. The inter Universalist humanist one, that's the one.
1: So I'm letting y'all know. In the meantime, I hate Jesus. I hate the Christian nationalist Jesus. That's the one Bruce was talking about. I hate that one, too. Um, I hate the Christian patriotist Jesus because that means supremacy over anyone that's not white, male,
0: and rich. So for the last time I say, I
1: believe and follow the Unitarian Universalist
0: Humanist Jesus. I reject the biblical religious Jesus. I believe in and devote myself to the Unitarian
1: universalist, humanist God. I reject the biblical religious God.
0: Um, so I'm a real disciple. Not a
1: fake disciple. Um, I'm a real believer and
0: follower, in the sense of I devote myself to thinking deeply. I devote myself to. The Good Samaritan life. I don't think non-Christians are going to hell. I don't believe that. I don't believe that non-Christians are going to hell. Um... My views on Jesus is that He's another influence in my life in the sense that
1: he's my role model for holistic human living as well as being divine by being human like we're all gods. So that's what I get out of him. So my image, my statement on eternal humanist Jesus is, is that um, you use like myself, view Jesus a moral exemplar, practicing the compassion, generosity, mercy that he preached. in His own life and the stories like the good shepherd of the Samaritan, Jesus calls us to connect. To transcend pride and selfishness, to that to love and serve, to do good, and to care for each other. I view Jesus as a reformer and dissident. And under and ally, he was executed as a political criminal and, in my view, a political prisoner because of his teachings, but his life and the impact that it now. He called out injustice in his own community and in the government. He stood with him and spoke up for those most vulnerable, and he challenged his followers to feed the hungry, visiting in prison. Jesus calls to transform
0: to resist the unjust systems that divide us and shape them for good. Um, and um, I just don't like the religious definitions
1: of Jesus as the son of God and redeemer, et cetera, Because it's all about being exclusionary. What I like about Unittain inter- Universalist views on Jesus is that they see him as like along with me, they're open to regardless if you're a Christian or not, he doesn't mind spending eternity with you. That's how I feel. Um I feel that the God of inter and Universalism feels the same way. But the religious God be like, Well, I don't want to be bothered
0: with you because. You don't think like me. I don't think
1: God would treat people that way. Um, I love this view on Jesus. As an interneversalist, meaning me, I'm talking about me here, I too love the reading of the Gospels, witnessing the method Jesus used to guide people to answer rather than simply giving them the answers. I connected Jesus as a person who wanted to fix the problems on his faith community and decided to build a community that he knew. possible to rather simply go through the motions of everyday life. I feel the same way, too. He's a voice for the voiceless. I feel that. Um, Okay? I have views on God. To me, God is my life force, my mystery, my web of existence, the web
0: of existence and my community, my love, my relationship, and The biblical and the biblical
1: God to me, I think God has been part of the divine. I don't think God is as menacing as it is in the Bible. I think that God is um, quite the total opposite—the kind of God that doesn't feel threatened by non-Christians.
0: Uh, those are my viewpoints. I just think that you know. God is in us, around us,
1: as us, by us, for us, and with us.
0: I think God is in us and around us. That's how I view God. Okay. Guys and earth and all spirits, everything, everywhere. I
1: agree with that. That's how new God, too. Uh, ooh, I can share one, one more. This is so cool. I just love healing. At this, I'll be done with my rich episodes for quite a while. Yes.
0: So, here's how I feel. Yogananda wrote in his one of his
1: critically acclaimed books, *The Second Coming of Christ and the Oak of Jesus*. Many are the tr- excuse me in his critically acclaimed books, *The Second Coming of Christ and the Oak of Jesus*. Yogananda wrote, many are the churches and temples founded in his name, often prosperous and powerful. But where is the community that he stressed actual contact with God? Jesus wants temples to be established in human souls first and foremost, and establish outwardly physical places of worship instead. There are countless huge edifices edifices with vast congregations being indoctrinated in, in, in church I hate church by the way. But a few souls who are really in touch with Christ through deep prayer and meditation. I love that perspective. When asked about Christ's resurrection and the second coming, young Gennad and ever said Jesus little return to earth, he said, a thousand Christ sent to earth will not redeem its people unless they themselves become Christ-like by purifying expanding their individual consciousness to receive therein the second coming of the Christ consciousness as was, mani- as was manifested in Jesus. Contact with this consciousness, experiencing the ever new joy of meditation, will be the real second coming of Christ and it will take place right in the devotee's own consciousness. Though it may, you know, for me, this contact has nothing to do with how I express my religion on the outside, what I wear, whether I go to church or not, and, sing, and the songs I sing are of little importance. I agree. I feel the same way. Though I work for others, I don't need a cross, communion, or special hymn to find God. Yes, I feel that. This means walking humbly through the world with kindness and compassion, loving others, especially when they don't believe what I do, whether they're Islamic, Jewish, atheist, agnostic, white, gay, trans, probably moderate, and perhaps of greatest importance is cultivating a deeper love for the divine, whether I call it Christ, Krishna, Buddha, Allah, Elohim, Higher
0: Power, Divine Mother, or God. I so agree. Yes. Okay. Reverend Michael, back with recited, scripture,
1: recited scriptures for every major religion, including the Torah, Torah, Koran, Bhagavad Gita. The author Jesus' words in the Bible. The kingdom of God was, was within you. And to be gender and sexually inclusive, the queendom of God is within you. And to include they, them pronouns, the royalty of God is within you. Luke chapter 17, verse 20 through 21. In his purview Christ's most important legacy was not a particular religion of or the church itself, but his spirit, his God consciousness, which reigns in all hearts. I so agree with that. Yes. Yes, I agree. I, yes, so thankful. I live a life of the universal Christ consciousness. I live a life of the universal God consciousness. I live a life of the universal higher consciousness. Yes,
0: yes, I do. Yes, I do. I want to read the rest of her, Bianca Alexanders, and I'll be
1: done with this episode. All right, Bianca Alexander. growing up in a Christian family, I was taught to believe that being a true believer, therefore getting into heaven, meant worshiping Jesus Christ as my one and only personal Savior. After being baptized as a baby and saved according to the a young adult, I believe that honoring Jesus required putting Christianity on a high pedestal that forbade acknowledgement of other saints' religions or paths to God. I always had a natural curiosity about other cultures and their spiritual practices, I secretly feared that being open to other faiths meant being disloyal to Jesus. To me, that was dangerous ground, both morally and spiritually. As a result, I thought did it, it anything, you know, and, and anyone, God put that in there too, they looked or felt too, quote, quote, for rituals I practiced growing up in the AME, African Methodist Episcopal Church. Each week, my family found on Sunday besties on the parade of custom suits, colorful white brim hats, fancy dresses, and pious white gloves. Once he had to our favorite pew, I played my part while singing, I sang on pitch from red handbooks. I stood up and sat down to recite verses from the Bible and sacred texts I ever read. Once a month, I quietly endured three hour community services with bread, crackers, and grape juice without looking bored. Watch a typically during service by charismatic pastors who were assigned to preach, shout, and stop the congregation to spiritual euphoria. As long as I looked the part, sang along, and recited on the key, no one ever asked me about the state of my consciousness. Though every service was uplifting, I often left church feeling spiritually empty. I can relate to those feelings. I really, really can. And then the other things that I noticed was women were told if you are naturally curvy, nifty, work a of clothing, the lipstick, the nail polish, the makeup, you do your hair, you're going to hell. Or out of wetlock teenage pregnancy, you're going to hell. Or just out of wetlock pregnancy without even being teenager, you're still going to hell. Or if you did your nails and kept yourself up, you did self-care with your personal care products, and got a massage, you're going to hell. Right. They were taught a lot of these bullshits. These motherfucking bullshits. These dumbass bullshits. These worthy-to-being-pissed-off type of bullshits. I fucking agree
0: with that, with myself. So, I think about how, um, You know, if you wear pants, you're going to hell if you're a woman.
1: If you smoke tobacco, smoke
0: marijuana.
1: Well, as long as you do it privately from us, we're not going to think you go to hell once. You know you're going to hell. And, you know, talking shit about other religions and other denominations that are Christian. And I would never worship them. I would never go to another house of worship. Even if they are, they say they're Christian, and especially if they're not Christian, I'm not going. I'm not going because you're going to hell. You're going to hell. It's crazy. It's crazy. And some of them feel like, well, sinners only sin with sinners, while saints sin with other saints. And I mean, sexually, do your dirt, but it has to be with a person like you. You're Christian. You sin with other Christians. So we can have, it's like, but you sin with a dog, Christian, somebody's just living the world, oh, well, I, I just can't with you, you going to hell. It's crazy. For a lipstick or, you know, like, especially, like, the red lipstick, the one that a lot of guys would have liked in terms of kissing women and all and, you know, as the sexual happens, you're going to hell. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. If a woman cut her hair or, you know, went to the beauty salon, you're going to hell for enticing men. You're going to hell. This is wow, 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 and so that's why they force women to dress like Muslims in a lot of these churches um scarf on, only cup you got cover, your face except your eyes because men ain't attract to your eyes, anything else they'll make them horny. you going hell, it's crazy, fucking insanity
0: um. I had to bring that up. I had to bring that up.
1: And a few things. I want to mention this quote from... I haven't said this quote in a while, but it just has to be said, okay? I want to quote the late Charles...
0: Edward Booth, who was a pastor. Um... Yeah, don't give the planet
1: Kojic Jesus, Methodist Jesus, Baptist Jesus, or Catholic Jesus. Give the planet non denominational Jesus. That's what I say. That's what, exactly what I say. Oh, I just found out there's a book titled Drunk with Blood God's Killings in the Bible by Steve Wells. God has his own separate account of each of his 158 killings, 2,821,364 verified killings, and 204 million. 994,828 estimated killings. Apparently, God is his own pandemic. Maybe he's the worst pandemic ever, and coronavirus has got nothing on him. I wrote these things, actually. Um, I want to quote, here's who I'm quoting. The late Charles Edward Blue, who was the pastor of Mount Olivet Baptist Church of Columbus, Ohio, for 41 years, and preached for 54 years, said to Pastor Frank Anthony Thomas, in an interview shortly before his death in early 2019. Preaching today raises many questions for me. I'm a little bit disheartened by what I'm hearing from the younger preachers. I think there, I think that there's an overemphasis on praise and prosperity. I don't think there's the kind of time that should be given to exegesis and prayerful study. What I hear so much of what's being lifted today in our tradition greatly discourages me. I guess my greatest critique my, I guess my greatest critique is that I'm not hearing today what has been for me the genius of African-American pulpit, namely prophetic preaching. There is for me today the absence of the prophetic. That There's no way that you could look at where we are today as a people, educationally, socially, politically, and economically, and not hear the prophetic voice of the African-American preacher. For me, that's very disheartening. You have some who are holding fast and firm to the tradition, but by and large, you have so many who are not. Another issue for me is that I don't see a lot of concern for people. So many younger preachers are concerned about what they can get out of the ministry rather than what they can put into the ministry. There's not a lot of caring for the sheep. I don't know that I see a lot of the pastor's heart today and young contemporary preachers. For me, the absence of the pastoral heart and the prophetic norm raises great questions for me. Many older preachers lack the pastoral heart and the prophetic norm as well. I'll add that I don't see a lot of the mature Christians' heart today. I see a lot of the immature Christians' heart today.
0: These are those other words I wrote. and why are we good at doing
1: church together but bad at doing life together why do we worship with people we don't even know even though we worship in the pews with them for years upon years why are we in church to get our spiritual hit and our church fixed and get out as quickly as we can not wanting to deal with people wanting to stay away from humans and why are we shortening our lifespan by rejecting fellowship and pretending we're all about discipleship? So, worldly people, secular people, are better at fellowshipping than church religious people? No one has to tell secular people to do fellowshipping, but church people have to do fellowshipping? That's crazy. So,
0: I also taught me something. Um, That basically, a lot of church
1: people, just like a lot of unchurch people, lack communication to personal skills, lack decision making problem solving decision making problem solving skills, lack creative thinking critical creative thinking critical thinking skills, lack self awareness skills, lack empathy skills, lack emotional intelligence skills, lack assertiveness skills, lack equanimity skills, lack self-control skills, lack resilience skills, and lack the ability to cope with problem skills. And a lot of church people just like a lot of unchurched people lack negotiation skills, study skills, employability skills, leadership skills, parenting skills, time management skills, organizing skills, application skills, interview skills, controlling good temper skills, Patient skills. A lot of church people, just like a lot of unchurch people, lack personal skills, keeping in mind healthy skills, stress and managing stress skills, anger, anger management skills, improving self esteem skills, building confidence skills, caring for your body skills, food, diet, nutrition, upholding skills, exercise skills. A lot of church people, just like a lot of unchurch people, lack its personal communication skills. They lack Listening skills, verbal skills, non-verbal communication skills, putting report skills, very effective communication skills, reflection skills, clarification skills, uh, liter reading and writing skills, and numeracy skills, and real-world math skills, budgeting skills, understanding interest skills, loans and saving skills, lifelong learning, personal development skills. Uh, they lack help, you know making healthy food, healthy diet, and healthy nutrition skills, lacking cooking skills, lacking hygiene skills, lacking personal care products, usage skills, lacking presentation
0: skills, lacking learning skills, lacking leadership skills, lacking... Um living, ethically living well skills, lacking
1: understanding sustainability skills. I've noticed that
0: they lacking transferable skills too. So as I conclude, I say, I
1: am open to the eternal paradise called heaven i hope that that is true because my grand i think my grandma's there i am open to um you know the truth about i'm open to all truths i'm open to all truths Maybe everything in conservative theology are things that I need evidence on. Um, so I'll end with these questions. Is the devil real? I don't know. Is heaven real? I don't know. Is hell real? I don't know. Is purgatory real? I don't know.
0: Are demons, angels, devils, and archangels, archdemons, the pearly gates,
1: the streets of gold, the feasts, the keys of life, are they real? I don't know. Um... God, and Jesus, the Bible Church, Holy Spirit, are they real? I don't know.
0: Um,
1: I don't know. I don't know. I see parts of the holy, all holy books that are divinely inspired, divinely great in terms of, you know, the parables that talk about the Good Samaritan, the street manager, those kind of things. Um, I could be wrong on everything. I could be right on everything. I could be in the middle between right and wrong on everything. That's how I feel. I'm just expressing my doubts and my concerns and my pain. And the hardships of my life. So thank you all for listening. I know it was a hell, hell of a lot.